Hi, I'm Kevin Smith, and Red State comes out this October 19th, 17th anniversary of Clerks. But if you want to see it before then, I'm coming around your town, man. I'm on the road with the Red State USA Tour. Come see me do a Q&A. Come see the movie as well. Actually, see the movie. Have you seen me do the Q&A? But this will be a different Q&A because it's following a screening of Red State movie. We just debuted up at Sundance and whatnot. Had a great time. And we're bringing it to you a little sooner than October rather than waiting till then. If you want to see it ahead of time, come out and see it. Tour kicks off March 5th, Radio City Music Hall. March 6th, Boston. March 8th, Chicago. March 9th, Minneapolis. March 10th, Michigan, Ann Arbor. March 11th, Indianapolis. March 12th, the Midland Theater in Kansas, March 14th, Springfield, March 15th, Washington, March 22nd, Denver, March 24th, Madison, Wisconsin, March 26th, New Orleans, um, March 28th, Austin, Texas, March 29th, Atlanta, Georgia, April 4th, Seattle, April 9th, the tour ends, the Wiltern Theater, Los Angeles, California. So you could see us at any one of those stops along the way. Come see Red State and have fun at the Q&A afterwards. I mean, the one in New York and L.A. will definitely be having cast and whatnot up on stage. The ones cross country probably just be me, but I'll be as funny as I can. You can ask me anything, even about the time they threw me off the plane for being a big fat shit. So come on out. If you want to help us out, see Red State. For all the information, go to coopersdell.com, C-O-O. P-E-R-S-D-E-L-L dot com. You can see all the tour dates. Click on one of those. Buy some tickets. Come out and see us. And if you can't afford to buy tickets right now, I know the global economy is pretty harsh. If uh, if you can't afford it, don't worry, man. We're going to be out in October. You can kind of see us then. And if you don't want to pay to see it then, you know, BitTorrent. It'll be on BitTorrent pretty damn soon. So uh, in any event, come help us out on the road. Red State USA Tour. Come see me and Red State. Um, Coopersdell.com for all information. God doesn't love you. Let's fear him. How's everybody doing tonight? Thank you. Uh, welcome to Red State of the Union Q&As. I'm Kevin Smith. Uh, this was meant to be the screening at my house, but the fucking avid crapped out on us. So you guys were going to have to wait about another two weeks, and then I was like, you know what, man, we just screened... Uh, the other day here at Laser Pacific, and it's a fantastic screening room, and this screen's way bigger than the screen at my house, and we never give out cool snacks. So uh, I figured we might as well do it sooner rather than later, rather than make you guys wait. Uh, so you guys have been involved with the process uh, since the Red State of the Union Q&As kicked off, so you've probably been hearing the most, seeing the most behind the scenes. Uh, so I'm always going to be way more curious to kind of hear the questions you have, because uh, in terms of anticipation, I guess this kind of built up over 10, 11 weeks or something like that. So, boy, I better have delivered. Let's see what you guys thought. Uh, questions, and then Derek's got a mic. Uh, is it turned on on the bottom? Throw your hand up. He'll bring you a mic. There you go right there. And we're off to the races. Uh, first of all, Kevin, I loved it. Uh, Thank you, sir. Yeah, I loved it. Um, in all of your, all of your other films, it's always been pretty clear and easy to define, like, whose story this was. You right. Know, it's Dante's story, or it's Zach's, or Zach and Miri's story. Um, who, who would you say in this film, whose story is this? What a great question. I don't know, because as you were saying that, I was going, I wonder whose story this is. And, <laughs> and then you asked, I was like, shit. Um, I don't think there is one. I mean, it's kind of a tricky little screenplay, and as much as just when you get comfortable with somebody... They're gone. And then you're like, okay, well, this is the hero. They're gone. Okay, this one. You know, we keep taking them away from you. So I didn't really think 
traditionally in terms of like whose point of view is this when I was writing I just thought of like this is the story to me and 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 I think if we we tried to play like you know in the movie begins you feel like oh it's Michael Angarano's movie we're going to follow his character and as you all can see that's not really the case so uh, I don't think there was forethought put into it in terms of like, hey, man, I'm going to – the central point of view is going to be this guy. I think it was meant to be kind of like misleading so that you did get comfortable and then we take him away from you. But when we take him away from you, we don't only just replace the character. We replace the movie. At that point, it's just like, okay, it's no longer the movie that we've all come to see. It's now this movie, which at that point may even be the third movie. I think there's three movies in there. One – Boys go out to get laid. Two, the weird fucking Cooper family, religious, uh, backwards, uh, quasi-Christian, uh, uh, Texas chainsaw story. And then, uh, the third story, the Waco story, essentially. So, uh, it's a weird mashup of three different flicks. Uh, and, and in some ways, it's kind of like, uh, a long time ago, before I even thought about writing clerks, me and Vinny Pereira used to leave the convenience store, quick stop all the time. There's a sign on the corner that said deaf child. And that fascinated us. Cause A, we didn't know the deaf child in the neighborhood. And B, it was just like, why put up the fucking sign? She knows she's deaf. You know what I'm saying? If it is a girl or a boy. But we were fascinated by the sign. We would start talking about, there's a TV show when we were kids called the 430 movie. Um, it was basically, they would take a feature film, chop it down to 90 minutes. It played between 430 and six o'clock at night. Um, but before the news came on, but, you know, there's commercials in there. So really the movie was probably only about an hour long. That's why when I finally saw the planet of the apes on Laserdisc, I was like, look at all this uncut footage. They're in space. Like it starts on a spaceship because the 430 movie version literally starts with the humans getting netted and shit. So for most of my childhood, planet of the apes began with motherfuckers just getting netted up and shit. So, um, at the end of the day, the 430 movie, like they would do themes constantly. Ape week, they'd show all the ape movies or cut versions of it. Um, or Nature Gone Awry Week, and that was like The Blob and Grizzly and fucking Empire of the Ants, Foo the God, shit like that. Um, and, and, uh, Godzilla Week and whatnot. And me and Vinny would sit there and muse about doing a movie called The 430 Movie. Um, we didn't have much to go except it would just be kind of anthological, if you will, three different movies kind of put together. But one was always going to be this story about this uh, futuristic society where the deaf prey on the blind. That's because we'd see that sign and be like, imagine if the blind and the deaf were fighting. <laughs> it was weird. We were kids and it was long before I got into filmmaking seriously. But as I watch this flick now, I realize in some bizarre way it is kind of the 430 movie because it is a, a genre mashup fil film, if you will. But at the, I couldn't tell you whose specific point of view it is except for some cruel fucking puppet master who's like, watch them die, you know, that's it. Unfortunately, it doesn't go very traditional. Thank you. Right back there, toss back. So weird, I never answer the questions, really. In this class, it's always everyone guesting. Hey. How's it going, sir? Good, man, how are you? I'm doing great. First of all, loved the picture. Thank you. Man, fucking-tastic. Thank you, thank oh, you. Oh, it's not radio, it's a podcast. Fuck yeah, it curves all you want. Uh, uh, Say pussy lips. Pussy lips. <laughs> <laughs> Got me hard. <laughs> Um, first of all, I would like to thank you because this class and your little speech at Sundance, which is up on YouTube. I don't know if you knew that. It is. And it we is also put it up. If you're, if you get this as a podcast, I think you'll already have what just went up today was a kind of mega podcast that has uh, a mega episode of Red State of the Union. 
It starts with an intro and then it leads into that speech at Sundance. And then uh, there's another piece of intro and then it leads into the Q&A that happened the morning after the second screening at Sundance. Then there's a little intro and then it does the Q&A that we did here in this room on Friday after the previous screening. Um, and so it's a pretty big, it's almost two hours long and you can hear that Q&A. And this class will be up next week as, as, the, as the episode. Well, I just wanted to say that this class and your su- speech at Sundance has uh, gotten me in the fucking gear, and I'm now starting my documentary. Right on, good Big for you. Thank, thank you. You can be in it, sir. Like, I'll just say thank you, Kevin Smith, at the end. Happily, I'll take that. Sure. Okay. So, yeah, because you always say you're a press whore. You should. We should interview you. Happily, sure. Oh, sweet. How do I do that? Uh, we're doing it right now. <laughs> it's happening. We're interviewing. Oh, okay. And uh, and second of all, was it hard for anybody to get in the character? Because like Ralph Garman on. Babble the fuck on seems so ni- well. I don't know if "nice" is the word, but ha- like a, <laughs> no, a funny yeah, fella. I don't know if I'd go with "nice." <laughs> a funny fella, and then in this movie, he's fucking terrifyingly dark. Right. So I mean, the, the only reason he's dark though is because he doesn't say anything. Yeah, like if he, he talked, you probably would have been like, "That's Ralph Garman." You know, <laughs> the fact that he's being quiet, he could just kind of mean mug and shit like that. But you know, at the end of the day, anybody you know could be nice in real life and go. Like Michael Parks is a really sweet guy, but you know. The character he plays, you would think like, I don't want to hang out with that fucking dude. But he's very easy to be around. Same kind of thing with Ralph. I, I, I mean, Kyle was the one, and we talked about in class, would like go into dark places listening to the music and fucking go off by himself. And I was always shaken by that. Like, don't do that. Come back. It'll be fine. Just pretend. But we didn't really have many other people like that. I mean, at least if they had a process, it wasn't, I didn't see it on set like that. So as far as I knew, everyone got into their shit pretty damn easily. I mean, Michael would talk about wanting to get Aben out of his head. Like, I can't wait till the shoot's over. I can put this son of a bitch all away. Because he lived with it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I wouldn't say that he was Aben Cooper on set. But, you know, you can't carry a performance like that without carrying a lot of it inside as well. So he crafted that guy and then had to let him sit in his chest for a while. And couldn't wait till the movie was over so he can kind of excise it. But I, that, the only one that I ever saw that seemed visibly kind of had to get into the moment would be Kyle. Thank you, sir. Thanks, man. Hey. Hey. Uh, damn, dude. Fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, I was reading a blog post of yours uh, the other day. Uh, you talking about um, a Q&A session you did with Tarantino. And uh, he asked okay. how, how many filmmakers there were in the audience yeah yeah so, uh, south by southwest back yeah, in 1997 and, and then he asked how many uh future distributors there were and there were no nobody put up their hand and um you proceeded by saying you're indie as fuck and ready to go or something to the effect of that and um fucking inspiring dude that's the push to go independent i totally support indie and what i just what's your piece i mean what's different about not using a distributor or not selling. Okay. All right. What's the, is that the question? What's the difference between the the two? All right. (laughs) Narrowing it down. Um, let's see the difference between what we're doing and what we've always traditionally done is essentially we're trying not to spend money this time. Uh, at least the money that normally kind of gets spent on marketing a movie back in the nineties and even the aughts, I would go so far as to say, uh, that was a time when economically the climate, uh, the business and just the global economy, could afford to spend marketing money on movies like mine. I have very rarefied audience, uh, and a very, and the audience, uh, isn't very massive. It's good enough to kind of support me all this time, 
but it's certainly not a mainstream audience. And for a good 10 years of my career, they would try to kind of break me mainstream because I came into indie film at an odd time. It wasn't quite indie film anymore. Remember, I had been bought by Miramax, which had been bought by Disney. So at that point, it wasn't really independent film at all. It was a studio film. It just had a kind of indie premature to it. And the boys were allowed to, Harvey and Bob, run the company the exact way they wanted. But, you know, there's a big safety net there. And as much as Mickey Mouse is ready to catch you if you're ever financially, you know, hard up or something like that. So I didn't come into a pure indie world. I made one indie flick, and that was Clerks, 27.575. And that was the budget of it. We sold it. And from that moment forward, I was pretty much making movies for a studio. It was just the studio was owned, you know, the indie distributor house that I was working for, but that was pretty much it. So I've never like made an indie film or distributed an indie film, never had to do the things that I was prepared to do back in the day when we went up to Sundance. Every distributor had seen the movie at that point. Everybody had passed. Miramax had even passed on it. So we were going to Sundance with the consideration that like nobody's going to buy this shit. We're just going to show the movie and that'll be that. Um, the plan prior to that had been like, let's make this movie as a calling card. Then we could show people we know how to make a movie. And then next time we don't have to pay for the movie. Somebody else will put the budget up for the movie. And then what happened was we took it to Sundance and somebody bought it and we were off and fucking running and it's been great ever since and fucking, you know, champagne dreams and caviar wishes, whatever the fuck. Just a big bucket of win. Um, but the world that, w- that we're kind of entering self distribution, no safety nut whatsoever. Like, here's a perfect example. Today, we're sitting there going, like, uh, I got to go to New York to do something, and then I have to go to Berlin from there. Who's paying for that flight? Back in the day, you know, it was just like, well, Miramax is covering that, and Disney Travel will arrange for it, and blah, blah, blah. I've never really had to kind of fend for myself. Somebody always kind of took care of stuff. Today was the first moment, though, me and John Gordon sitting down going over the logistics of the tour and uh, little things like the merchandise, what we're bringing, blah, blah, blah. It's work, dude. Like, it becomes so much fucking work. And, like, I'm sitting there going, like, oh, my God. Like, it would have just been so much better to sell the movie and just do what I always did, which is just, like, call me when I got to do the interviews. I'll go out and do that shit. It would have been easier. I don't know if it would have been better. Because I'd done that nine times. And each time it was less satisfying than the first. You know what I'm saying? Because stuff I make, like I said, doesn't have broad audience at all. But they spent on it in the 90s and the aughts like maybe it could. Because that's what you did back then. Like you were bought by a major, by a studio like Disney owning Miramax. And so Miramax kind of started, you know, Bob and Harvey started spending more. Being like, well, let's do the game like the studio. Like you spend money to make money. And they wouldn't spend as much in marketing as the studios would. But they would still kind of start spending more than they did when they had to release Secret Policeman's Other Ball or even The Crying Game by themselves before they get, or The Piano rather, by themselves before they get picked up. So, you know, it suddenly there becomes a reliance on marketing. You gotta spend money to make money. And a movie like mine, they used to spend marketing dollars on. And the dollars I watched over the years go higher and higher. And the thing is, we would work so fucking hard to keep the budget to this level, to not fucking spend a lot of money doing it. Every step of the way, every flick I've made, even the ones where I've made, uh, where perhaps they were budgeted too high for some's taste or whatever, the taste of some. Jer- Jersey Girl, $35 million movie. That's still cheap comparatively. But I didn't get into the business to make Jersey Girl. You know what I'm saying? Like I didn't, I wasn't a kid in 92 watching Slacker or in 1991 on the screen going, one day I want to make a movie about a guy whose wife dies 
and he's got to raise a kid. Like that came later on after I'd made all the passion films. And the passion films I made because I got picked up by a distributor that let me do anything I wanted. You know, because they had a fucking big deep pocket behind them, Harvey and Bob would be like, what do you want to do? Because your movie makes money. Even either, either in the theater or on video, we make money off you. What do you want to do? And so I'd go in and be like, I'm going to make this movie. And they'd be like, go ahead. And we'd go do it, and it was great. Um, and it was fun. I got paid well to do it in some cases, some cases not so well. But regardless, it was always better than I was making a quick stop. Um, but at the end of the day, it would always come down to the equation of selling the movie. And that that's where I had the complete disconnect, and it always bugged me. Because when you're selling, when you're marketing a movie, like, say, Tron, the new Tron that Disney did. Let's say Tron costs $100 million. We all know it probably costs way fucking more. But let's say it costs $100 million. They're trying to launch a global fucking brand. You know what I'm saying? They're trying to kick the doors open on Tron, create a new life for Tron. That's the only reason you spend that much money on a movie like that. You're creating a franchise. So if you've spent $100 million making that movie, you can't fucking be like, word of mouth is it's good. You know what I'm saying? Like those cats have to fucking spend. That's, that's what you do. In order to make back $100 million, you got to spend close to another $100 million in selling it and marketing it. That makes sense on a studio level because it's big gambles and lots of money at, at play. I don't make stories that require that much to sell because nobody is ever coming to see it except the people that come see my shit. I've been doing this 17 years, and in my research, the only people that come see Kevin Smith movies are the people that come see Kevin Smith movies. I know it sounds like a dopey equation, but it's absolutely true. And for years, basically, they would show me like marketing materials, commercials, how much we were going to spend, and they'd be like, we're going after the audience that's not your audience. And I'd be like, what are you talking about? What, what is that? That makes no sense. Go after my audience. Like, they'd hate this shit. Like, I look at this trailer. I don't even recognize this movie. I worked on this movie. Like, this is not the sell. Don't, don't do it like this. I'd be like, Kevin, your audience is coming. Like, they're always coming. We know your audience comes. They come see everything you do. Why should we go after them? Let's go after an audience that's not coming to see your stuff. And I would always sit there and go like, all right, is that, is that how it's done? And they're like, of course that's how it's done. Why would you play it to the people that are already coming to see you? Play it to the people, the new people that you want to capture. And so they would spend money to capture those new people. And the equation that I used at Sundance, we'll break it open here. I was sitting on the set of, uh, of, of uh, Red State day four. And I started thinking about, wow, man, four million bucks. We're pulling this off four million. Everybody's cinching their belts. Everybody is like, I called in favors. I didn't take a salary. A lot of motherfuckers dropped their salary and stuff like that. We're all pulling it together, pulling, cinching the belt to do it for four million bucks. What's the best case scenario we sell it in this climate? And I said, maybe six. Let's be honest, probably four. Maybe get an even swap worldwide. Then you got to wait for like the movie to come out and play, go overseas to see any back end, DVD, all that shit. So I started thinking, okay, they buy it for four million. I'll pay the investors back. And I guess sooner or later, man, we'll see some, you know, on DVD, there'll be some money down the road for, for the investors, make it worth their while. And even me and John, who didn't get paid to do the movie. So that'll be that. But then I said, wait a second. That's not true. I know this game. I've been through this many times. They're going to spend to open the movie. So it's not just four million that we have to make back. It's what they're going to spend marketing. So let's say they spend what Lionsgate spends on a Tyler Perry movie or a Saw movie. And the first Saw was, I think they made it for less than five million bucks or something like that. That's the story we've all been told. And I believe it's true. Um, they marketed that movie like to the tune of 20 million bucks. So it costs nothing and they'll spend more to market it. When the movie costs less, 
the instinct in this business is always to market more because they're like, we've saved so much money. We couldn't make a movie like this for less than 25 million. So if it only costs four, let's throw 20 at it. Why not? Let's shoot the moon. Cause the idea is like you, you roll the dice, right? You're throwing commercials out there. You're hoping to make as much money as fucking possible. Again, makes sense for studio film, not for little movies like this. This is a movie that took three fucking years to find money to make. Nobody wanted to make this movie. Not even Harvey and Bob, my chief benefactors who for years gave me fucking money to do whatever I wanted. Those guys were like, Kevin, it's bleak. It's uncommercial. Who the fuck wants to see this movie? And, you know, at that point, I was, it started rolling in my head, like going, okay, you can't expect somebody to pay for something that nobody wants to see. But something inside of you, I don't know what it is. What do you want to call it? Artist? still wants to make this movie, even though somebody's going, no, we're not going to give you money for it. And it kept it alive. You know what I'm saying? So even though it took three years to find the budget, finally found it, found four million to make the movie. Wasn't traditional, found two sources outside the film business. Now, at that point, if it took three years to find the money and I made the movie and I've watched the movie and it's a wonderful film as far as I'm concerned. I enjoy it, but I know it ain't commercial. I look at the movie and I'm like, this is about horrible fucking people. As my man says right here, he's like, who's the main character? Or whose focus is it? It's not. It's all over the place. The movie is experimental to some degree. I mean, it looks kind of traditional, but in terms of like a three-act structure or anything that's like safe or commercial that you can hang a marketing hook on, doesn't fucking exist in this movie. Sure, you can cut TV spots, got a lot of guns going off and stuff like that. But generally speaking, how the fuck are you going to market this movie? So I'm sitting there thinking on the set, they buy it for four. Somebody's going to try to market it. Let's say they do the Lionsgate 20 million because we always thought Lionsgate would be the most likely company to buy this movie. Suddenly you don't have to make four million back. You have to make 24 million back because 20 million in marketing has been tacked on top of it. And let's say it's not 20. Let's be conservative because some people online are like, he's crazy. 20 million. They're out of their fucking minds. 20 million is conservative, but let's go even more conservative because who the fuck would spend 20 million opening a, a polemic like this? Let's say they spend 10 million. Now I've got to make 14 million back. Okay. That's not bad. I think I can make 14 million at the box office. My movie's open fairly decently. I think I can reach that, but we're not making back 14 million because the studio doesn't get what you see in the box office report. So it's not like if my box office gross says 14 million, studio's not getting back 14. They're getting back seven to eight or something like that. So suddenly the $4 million movie. You've got to make that 14 plus let's double it up so we can clear some, I guess 28. Let's say 28 million. And in, in Sundance, the equation I used was four plus 20, double that. That's 48, almost 50 million before we could see profit. Even if you lower that to 10 million in marketing, it's still ridiculous. A $4 million movie, which is easy to kind of make that money back, suddenly cost fucking 30, 40 million dollars to, to see any sort of profit. Who would play this game? It's fucking ridiculous. I'd rather just sit on a podcast and tell you the story of Red State for free. And then you see it in your head and that's it. And we've moved on and shit. It's just the older I get, the more I'm just like, you know what? I don't make movies like most traditional movie makers. I don't make mainstream movies. And that's the only way you can make money in this business is as a mainstream movie maker. So every once in a while, you can have a nice Blair Witch surprise out of nowhere or something like that. But even those cats had to spend to get where they were. It's just kind of tough and getting tougher for a guy who tells stories that don't appeal to everybody. And the older I get, the less I want to make stories that appeal to everybody. You know what I'm saying? You had a better chance of getting me in the early days making something that was maybe for everybody. The older I get now, I'm like, no, I don't want to do something for everybody. I want to do something that makes me happy as a fucking artist or blah, blah, blah. All those kind of things combined, man. I'm sitting there going, this is a disaster. We haven't even finished shooting. And already the movie's going to lose money by the time it comes out. 
I said, this is, there's no way to stop the hemorrhaging of marketing dollars. Like it was tough enough to find four million to make the movie. And then somebody is going to pay someone else tens of millions of dollars more than we had to make the movie or millions of dollars more than we had to make the movie at the very least just to sell the movie. Like to somebody who doesn't want to see it. Like they ran commercials for Jay and Silent Bob Strike back on Lifetime once. And I remember looking at that going, why is there an ad for Jay and Bob on Lifetime? They're like, well, we got a cheap ad rate. It included a few different networks. I'm like, nobody from Lifetime is ever going to go fucking see Jay and Silent Bob Strike back. And I can't theoretically prove it, but I saw the box office grosses and didn't indicate that the whole female audience came out suddenly. So for me, I'm just like, it doesn't make sense. For me, I'm not saying for the rest of the world. I'm not saying for Steven Spielberg, of course, spend tons of money on the movies he makes. He makes mass populist entertainment for people. I don't. I, the company used to be called View Askew. There was a reason for that. You know, it's not like View a common. It was very off the beaten path. And this movie, while it doesn't say View Askew, is probably the least like user-friendly film I've ever made, even more so than Clerks. Like everyone looks at Clerks now and they're like, oh yeah, Clerks, man, it's fun. But in the beginning, that was a stark movie to look at because nothing else looked like it. It looked like shit. And everything else used to look kind of good. And I was the first guy that stood up and said, movies could look like shit. And I, <laughs> I guess, but anyway, they, that movie like was, it, it's a, uh, it's just a far cry from this. And to me, I just saw the future play out again as it has played out every other time. They're just going to spend on it. This is the game that they play in Hollywood and in any movie business. You spend on the marketing, you cross your fucking fingers and hope to God that the fucking gamble pays off. And they watch the tracking every step of the way to see how much interest is out there. And that costs money to even do the tracking to figure out where you might open. It's just, it's not a game I want to be in anymore because I'm not very good at it. I've never been. And the harder the economy gets, the harder it is for a guy like me to make films in that economy that are ever going to make people back their money. So at that point, I'm sitting there going, okay, what are my options here? We can just quit right now on day four, or we can figure out a different way to do it. And I started talking to John Gordon, my producer, about it. And I was just like, did the math for him? He was like, yeah, yeah. He's going, that always bugged me, but what are you going to do? That's the game. That's how the game is played. And I was just like, okay. And we've done that. Like I've done it personally on nine different films. I said, what if just one time we just tried it differently? He was like, what do you mean? I was like, what if we just played it straight? And he was like, what do you mean straight? And I was like, like everybody goes like the movie cost uh, $10 million and it opened to $12 million. Hurrah, hurrah. But nobody ever says what the marketing costs were. And we all know that's the fucking, that's where the meat is. In many cases, particularly on the lower budgeted films, they tend to overspend on marketing because the budget of the flick itself was so low. Again, they sit there going, the logic, I've seen it time and time again. The logic is like, we saved so much money. You made the movie so cheaply, we can throw around some more marketing dollars. And in the midst of my career, that was one of the things people always told you you wanted. They're like, you want more marketing. You want as much P&A commitment as possible. And that always sat wrong with me because I'm like, I, I, don't, I don't get it. This marketing dollars you're talking about, you're spending to reach people who are never going to fucking come. I don't make movies for everybody. I make movies for a very select group. And I've been talking to that group since 1995 online. I'm not going to say I hit every person who ever has liked my movie only online, but it's where a majority of the cats live. It's where I grew my audience from the Viewskew website. You could track the growth of our, our, uh, our, our audience based on us opening up Viewskew.com in 1995, where we did Mallrats prior to that, which opened to like 2.1 million. 
And then Chasing Amy opens two years later after two thriving years of a Viewski website with a web community and a board and shit like that and events that we'd done. It goes to 12 million, you know, on less screens and shit. You can track, like I've got an audience grown career and I'm sure every filmmaker to some degree has that, but there's a difference between having a wide audience of like, you know, hundreds of millions of people that want to see your stuff and doing some weird off the beaten stuff that only a certain amount of people want to see. I'm not saying one's better than the other, but I'm just saying one's got more shelf life and it's the motherfucker who can entertain everybody. Now, factor into this, the fact that I'm 40 years old and coming up on October 2nd, no, August 2nd rather, is the 20th anniversary of the moment that I sat there and watched Slacker and said, oh my God, I want to be a filmmaker. 20 years ago, coming up in August, it was the moment that I decided out of nowhere that I wanted to be a filmmaker. And it's been 20 years, and it's been fucking amazing. And everything, every goddamn day has been a gift. And for a guy that just wants to make a calling card movie and shit, for all of this to have come from it, it's astounding. Uh, It's amazing. But I'm a writer-director. The only reason I got into this whole thing is because I like to tell stories first and foremost. And back then, the only way I could tell a story I felt was in a screenplay form, or at least that was the one I chiefly wanted to do it in. Because I'd seen Slacker, I was like, yeah, I want to be a filmmaker. Film, film. Film was the vehicle that got me here. And then along the way, I've diversified. I've jumped out and done something over there and come back onto the film bus. And then jumped out, did shit over there and come back out. So I've been kind of all over the map and doing a bunch of different things. And I've found that I can tell stories anywhere in many different ways, shape, and forms. And telling it in film is the most arduous, expensive, and lengthy way to tell a story in a world where I can do it any number of other ways and simply do it uh, less expensively, um, more um, more uh, uh, compactly, not nearly as long. Three years it took to finally get this movie made. You know what I'm saying? That's a long fucking time for something to be in your life and go up and down with it and shit like that. And at the end of the day, it's like rightfully so. Rightfully so. It took us fucking three years to find four million for this. Look how unlikable all those people are. You know, it's like who would want to finance that movie? So at the end of the day, you just feel like I I can't sustain the career that I would like to play in this economy anymore. Number one. Number two, I can't even play the game that I want to play anymore. You know what I'm saying? I was a writer director first. That's the engine that drove this whole fucking train. I didn't want to be a director. I wanted to be a writer director. Steven Spielberg is a director. He's a born filmmaker who will go off of this planet, toes up on a fucking set. He is born to make films. I wasn't. I don't know what I was born to do. It might be to tell stories, but it was not to direct film necessarily. That was just one thing I've done for a while. And after 20 years of doing it, I'm just done, man. Like, I'm just, I don't know what else to say. I have no more stories left to tell, at least in screenplay format. I've gotten to a place where I'm like, if I really want to say something passionate, I'll just pick up a fucking microphone and start talking now because all that film stuff has led to me having an audience that they're like, yeah, he makes movies too, but I just listen to other stuff he does as well. The podcast, I like to see him on Q&A, blah, blah, blah. So the film started the discussion, but the discussion continues even without film and i've reached a point where i'm like 20 years into doing this i would like to stop i'd like to go out the way i came in independent trying to fucking do something i hadn't done before or that hadn't been done before you got to remember man i started young and with clerks like when you kick open your door with something like fucking clerks man you have to live up to that movie for the rest of your fucking life and it wasn't that great to begin with you know what i'm saying like it was a first film at best 
but it was a legendary first film that like made people think that I can make a film. You know, it was the film that launched a thousand bad films probably. <laughs> but you know, it's, it, it has its place. And, and, and when you have a movie that suddenly like instantly, like I didn't count on my first movie to ever fucking play any kind of role in film history, what fucking so ever, not even a fucking footnote, but no matter what I do for the rest of my life, Clerks will be clerks. You know, it was an important movie for some. It was a dopey movie for others, but it, it did what it was supposed to do. But what a high bar that is, man. Like all your dreams come true the first time up at bat. Every time after that, it's just your dreams coming true more. And I finally got to a point where like I got rid of every story that I had in me lurking in me from when I worked at, uh, at Quick Stop or lived at my parents' house or something like that. That was all gone. And then I started getting to a place of like, okay, well, what if we do a movie about a guy who's married to a lady and she dies and he's got to raise the kid? Or then you get to a point of like, I don't have any stories to tell, so I'm going to direct this movie about the fuck a black cop and a white cop looking for a baseball card. Like I, when I saw Slacker, I didn't sit in that theater going, yeah, man, yeah, yeah, cop out. That's what I'll do. <laughs> you know, but I, and I enjoy cop out. I'm not shitting on it. I, I will love cop out to the day I fucking die. It was a very important movie for him to make and nobody will ever understand that perhaps but me, but it led directly to this fucking movie, particularly the money. But at the end of the day, if a guy like me, the guy who got into this game to make clerks, to make chasing Amy, the dude who was like, if I don't fucking make a movie, I'm going to die. I'm now a guy who's like, if I don't make a movie, I can just make another movie. <laughs> because they'll let me make movies from now until the end of fucking time, man. Because I make them cheaply, and they always make money off of the flicks I do. They may not be huge mainstream successes, but the stuff I do makes money for somebody. It's the only reason they've allowed me to go as long as I've gone. It's not the, the kindness of anybody's fucking heart, regardless of what anyone would like you to believe. But at this stage of the game, man, I just don't. I don't have it anymore. I've got one story left to tell. Hit somebody. And that's fucking the one that'll sum it all up. It would be my thesis film, if you will, if this was all film school. And let's be honest, for the last 20 years, I've been attending film school in public. That's all I've been doing. I didn't enter this game knowing my craft. I entered the game making fucking clerks. It looks as amateurish as it is because it was made by amateurs. It wasn't like a bunch of pros going, let's make it look cheap and inexpensive. There's a bunch of kids going like, we have no money. It is cheap and inexpensive. And thankfully, that built a fucking career. But at the end of the day, that was then. And I've done everything I wanted to do. And when I get to a place, when a writer-director, not every director, this is just for the writer-director and not even for all writer-directors, but definitely for this writer-director. When I get to a place where I'm like, yeah, I'll direct your script even though I didn't write it, it's time to go. It's time to back out gracefully because I never wanted to get into this business to do that. I wanted to get in this business to make shit like Clerks and Chasing Amy and Dogma. I mean, literally, I got in this business to make Clerks and Dogma. Those are the only two scripts I had in me. Everything else that came was just wonderful timing, uh, great opportunity, blessed opportunity that I'll never regret. But at the same time, it was just people going like, you're here now. What are you going to do next? And so I kept busy. Unlike most people, some people I came up with, man, made one or two films, you never heard from them again. Some made one, you never heard from them again. And people may not like the shit I've done, but I stayed fucking busy, dude. I got in 20 years back or 17 years back at this point, and I st kept nose to the grind. So once I had my foot in the door, I was just like, uh, we got it. We got to set up the next project before this project's done because we don't ever want them to figure out that we're idiots. You know, we want them to think that fucking we know what we're doing. And I've done that for so long and it's been fucking fun and, and my whole life 
for the last 20 years. Uh, it went one day from like me working at a convenience store and just fucking dreaming about maybe writing for Saturday Night Live, getting some fucking pussy that's out of my league perhaps or something like that. Maybe making six bucks an hour quick stop instead of five. And then one day fucking later, Somebody was like, here's your career. You're a filmmaker and you hit the ground running. Either you fucking buckle under that sudden pressure or you're just like, okay, I'm a filmmaker. Let's go. And we kept going and going and going. And after nearly 20 years, I'm just, I'm done. I'm out of steam. I'm, I don't have any more stories to tell. Hit somebody will sum up everything that I've done thus far. And when I'm done with that, I would just like to push away before people like, look, I know there are a lot of people out there like, you should have left after chasing Amy. But you got to play the game your way. This is my game. You know what I'm saying? Everyone could judge my game from the fucking sidelines, but the game is on my fucking stick. And it all it's up to you how you feel about it. And right now, I feel like if I go out and hit somebody, I'll be going out at the top of my game. Like, I love Red State, and I love what I've been able to accomplish with it, and I love what it represents because the spark is back, the fire is back. You can tell that somebody who made this movie fucking wanted to be there every step of the way and work their fucking ass off to make it happen without help. In a world where somebody was like, we don't have enough money, uh, money for that. There's not enough in the budget. It was like, fuck it. We'll make it work anyway by hook or by crook. So I want to end with spit, fire, vinegar, passion that I came in with. I don't want to end in like, yeah, I made the fucking 18th Mighty Ducks movie. You know, because I like hockey. You know, it's just, uh, and that's what will fucking happen, man. And I ain't judging anybody who wants to stay in the game, but Quentin Tarantino a long time ago said to me, directing is a young man's game. I'm getting out before I'm 50. And I said, you're fucking crazy. This is the greatest job in the world. And he's just like, you'll see. And he's right. You just get to a point. I don't, I don't know if he's there yet, but I've reached that point where I'm like, yeah, the guff is empty, man. It's time for the seventh sign to happen and shit. Where's Demi Moore? Um... <laughs> That was a bad reference. The, uh, I've gotten to a point where I'm just like, I can, t any story I want to tell, I can do on podcasts now, I can do on stage. I can, I can go any number of other places. The, uh, the doors are now open to me in ways that were never open to me 17, 20 fucking years ago. And at this point, I feel like I should step back, let fucking young bucks in. You know what I'm saying? Like, there's only so much money to go around and shit. And I would like to watch other people's fucking stories. You know, I, I created a whole fucking, like, now I know what John Hughes knew. You know, I always would sit there and be like, why did he stop? Why would he stop directing? Just keep producing Home Alone movies. It's easier. It's just so much easier, dude. It's like, I can't tell you. It's like, it's an easier life to go that route. And I don't, I didn't get into this to, for it to be easier to make shit tons of money. I got in to tell some stories and I've done it. And in the process, I made lots of money. It was fun and shit. Got treated way better than I ever should have. Got better pussy than I ever should have in my life. Got to tell every movie story that I ever wanted to tell. And I just think gracefully to the universe, to God, to whoever gave me the opportunity, I have to step back. I, I don't have anything left and I don't want to just manufacture it just because I like being in the club. I'll always be in the club. I just don't need to collect a paycheck for it anymore. And I built a body of work that I'm proud of. Every one of them, even fucking Cop Out or Jersey Girl, every one of them I'm fucking proud of. And I want to be able to step away when I could still say that. And I know if I stick around longer doing that particular job, I'm not going to feel that way. Sooner or later, there's going to be two, then three, then five on there where I'm just like, yeah, well, I guess I'm just a filmmaker, and that's what I do. I mean, look, I literally have caught myself saying that so many times. Like, you know, I used to be all about fucking the passion and shit, but now filmmaking is my job. It's my career. And if I fucking went back and met 21-year-old Kevin, was just like, one day you're going to think about filmmaking the way your father thinks about the post office. <laughs> you know, I'd be like, you're out of your mind. Film rocks. Film does rock. It's amazing. But 
it ain't just mine. It belongs to everybody. My little portion of it is coming to a close, and I've had such a good fucking time doing it. And I'd rather fucking run out the clock doing any number of other things, trying new shit, than just trying to do the same thing over and over again. I feel like by the time I'm done with Hit Somebody, I will have accomplished some kind of secret goal that I didn't even know I had in the beginning, which was to become a better filmmaker. You know what I'm saying? You look at my early stuff, it's very... It's made by an amateur. It's literally, you can watch me go to film school in front of you as you look at the films. And I get incrementally better as a filmmaker every step of the way. And I feel like with this one, I'm really fucking hitting my stride and shit. And people are like, if you're hitting your stride, why leave? It's because I don't have anything left to say in film. There's nothing left for me to say in a screenplay that I can't write in a blog or that I can't put in a podcast. You know what I'm saying? And film is just a sexy way to get a message across or tell a story, but it ain't the only way. It's just kind of very popular and glitzy and everybody knows it, but I find the podcast more fulfilling at this point. You know what I'm saying? I can sit down, record hours and hours of chatter and instantly put it up and it didn't cost me anything but time and interest and passion. Doesn't cost money. Doesn't cost like, let's line up these schedules and make sure all these actors can make this happen. Or let's make sure Dave is free. Or let's find this money to even pull this shit together. Or let's fly these motherfuckers to go talk to these people about the movie. It's just so much, man. And it's, it's on the outside, you see the cool stuff, you know, the results. But as the dude who's in the inside of it all the time, I, 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 that part of it doesn't interest me anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like, like even on this with releasing this without spending money. Like, I remember back in the day, first time I saw a commercial for Clerks on TV. Oh, I just best shit myself. Oh my God, there's a commercial for my movie. Like, I am in a commercial on television. And now when I see a commercial on a statement or something like that, I get queasy because I'm like, why would you spend that money? Like, none of these people are going to see the movie that you put the ad on this commercial, like on this network, Lifetime. Why would you do that? Like, oh, my God, we could have saved that money. I don't want that anymore, man. I became, I said it at Sundance. I became far more businessman than I ever wanted to. I didn't want to know all this shit about business. I just want to tell fucking stories. So after 20 years, man, I realized, all right, I could stick around and keep telling stories and collect the cool checks and then, you know, hang with the cool kids and like, hey, man, I won. Just shut up and fucking count your blessings. Or I could be the guy that I came into this business as and like, well, I'm going to try this. I want to do this. Let me just see if this works. I'm just curious. Life's about those little adventures, little accomplishments and living kind of little movies along the way. You can't do the whole thing. If you ever look at it from the front to the back or even from the back to the front, it's too fucking overwhelming and big. Everything has to get broken down like this. Even when you make movies, you don't sit there with the whole script on set and go, let's make it all right now. You break it up into little fucking sections, conquer things, little things one at a time. And this was something I wanted to conquer like nearly 20 years ago and and lord did we conquer it you know and maybe not some people be like you're no steven spielberg but like dude i didn't even think i'd be kevin smith you know what i'm saying like and, and i'm happy with that so it's time for me to push back and at that moment all that information kind of colliding at once makes me go it makes no sense for us to spend 20 million dollars to try to trick people into seeing this movie I won't do it again i can't do it again not this time man and i was like john this is the cheapest budgeted movie i've shot since chasing amy this we'll never have a chance like this again he's like what are you talking about i was like we could take it out ourselves he goes why and i was like because then we won't have to spend any marketing he's like you could just sell the movie and tell them not to spend on marketing i was like but they won't do it because they have to they're business people man they know they got to spend money to make money but i think we could do it i think basically we could take the movie out 
ourselves and try to make the money back without spending any money. Just for once, just to try to be different than the nine previous times we've done it. Imagine if we were able to kind of pull it off, socially network the movie in a way like Paranormal Activity did before Paramount started dumping money into it. Like when at first, in the beginning, it was just kind of word of mouth and shit like that. So for me, I'm like, maybe we could pull that off. And then we don't have to worry about all those dopey marketing dollars. Now, the plan is pretty simple. It's four million bucks to make back, right? For our investors, that's what we have to take care of first and foremost. And a lot of people are like, you can't tour the movie to make four million. Like, yeah, I can, but I don't want to. That would be a lot of touring. This first tour, all of March that we got set up, if we were to sell out every seat, we would wind up making 1.5, clearing $1.5 million. Now, we're never going to sell on every seat. Radio City Music Hall alone is 6,000 fucking seats. If I can get to half on Radio City Music Hall, I'm a happy fucking camper. The break-even is even way lower than that. But if I can get to 3,000 seats at fucking Radio City, believe me, I'd be a happy fucking camper at that point. So for me, I'm like, let's just take it out. Like, I'm going to go out between movies. I go out all the time anyway and do this exact same fucking shit. Usually I'm much funnier when I'm doing it. Um, but I go out and I Q&A all the time. So I was like, I'm going to do it again. I had a bunch of gigs getting lined up for my next round of, the, of, of uh, Q&A tours. And I said, let's take the movie out. We could take the movie out on the road to show it because we never intended the movie to be done this fucking... We didn't think we'd go to Sundance. Like initially when we started shooting and we wanted to shoot in August and we were the plan was shoot, get the movie ready, show it to Sundance, try to launch from Sundance. But we didn't wind up starting production until September 21st. So at that point, we were like, we're never going to make the November fucking deadline. Let's just make the movie, and then we'll come out when we want it to come out. We always want it to come out like October 19th, which is the 17th anniversary of the release of Clerks. We thought that was kind of poetic or something like that. So we had this movie that we weren't getting ready to take out to the fall, and suddenly we had an opportunity to take it to Sundance because I'd been cutting so quickly during the shoot that when we were done shooting, we literally had a locked cut of the movie. And we showed Sundance and they were like, yeah, bring it up. This is awesome. And we were kind of like, oh shit. So we were sitting there going, okay, we're going to debut the movie in January and then nobody's ever going to watch it again until October. What are our options? We can go the festival circuit. That's what we did with clerks. And I think chasing Amy to some degree as well, where you debut at Sundance. We got picked up by Miramax in that instance. And then Miramax sent me and Mosier across the country, stop by stop, going to film festival from film festival, film festival. I'm pretty sure me and Mosier did 20 film festivals, if not more that whole year. And if it wasn't a film festival, they would send us to a college campus and you would sit there and kind of show the movie and, and do this, do a much briefer Q and A or something like that. So for us, I was like, let's do that. Let's do what, what Miramax made us do with clerks. Like if we show the movie in January at Sundance and it's not coming out till October, then like we could either take it to festivals or I could take it out with me on tour. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, well, I'm going on tour anyway, dude. And literally, I just stand there and fucking go like, one time I made a script for Superman, you know, and I've been doing that for fucking years. And they, you know, at this point, they now pay me or they don't pay me, but they pay 65 bucks like a ticket to go do that. And to be fair, you know, I, I put myself down and joking shit. I put on a fucking tight show. You know, you all been to some of the Q and A's. Sometimes they go seven fucking hours. I believe in giving value for the money and shit. So I'm sitting there going, John, they're already paying 60, 65 bucks to go see me in a theater right now. Just stand there, sweat and talk about fucking getting kicked off Southwest Airlines. Imagine if I can show them a movie. And that's how the Q&As began. Like back in the day, the only reason I could stand up here and blah, blah, blah for hours, you can ask me one question of three words and I could do 40 minutes. 
is because in the beginning, Harvey and Bob would be like, go out there, talk about the movie. They didn't have stars in their movies. Like, Clerks had no stars in it. So the only person who's going to get press is you. So you go out, speak on behalf of your movie. And I would go to Q&As. Like, you know, after on the festival circuit, you do the show the flick, and then you stand out there and answer questions and whatnot. Even when I did the college screenings, they'd show the movie, and then I'd come out and do an hour Q&A. And then after, like, two years of, like, showing the movie and me coming out and doing Q&A, I was like, why are we fucking watching these movies? We've seen these movies. Like, how about we just do the Q&A? So we got rid of the movies. Then I would literally just show up places and start answering fucking questions and shit. Um, it's ironic that now we're going kind of back to the original model, which is we're going to show a movie, and then I'll come out and answer questions and stuff. So it felt like rather than just let it sit until October, take it out on the road, man, while I'm going out on March. So from from March 5th to April 9th, we're touring the flick. What we do after that, we're trying to figure out next. Do we do a second tour um, or is it a, ch- a cheaper tour? Like That's the thing. We have flexibility now. We can figure things out as we go along the way. Like this tour, the price point is this. Um, perhaps we do the next tour where I don't necessarily go on the road, but you know we charge this much and then we still do a Skype Q&A. So at the end of the day, screening, the lights come up and they put a fucking monitor there and I'm at home and doing a Q&A in Wisconsin. You know, it's just like you can play like that when there's no boss going don't be fucking ridiculous you know <laughs> not saying any names but um you you could get more flexible you can kind of try shit out and be like let's do this let's do that let's give this a shot so you know we went to sundance and we announced it and everybody fucking went ape shit uh, not everybody but some people went ape shit in a way where you're like what part of what i just said didn't you guys understand like there were people calling me arrogant i saw so many people going like this is arrogant who does he think he is taking his movie out there without fucking spending money on it isn't it more arrogant to say like here's my four million dollar movie that nobody wanted to finance took us three years to get money for now put 20 million on top of it to trick people to see it (laughs) that's fucking arrogant like i have the balls to admit nobody's gonna want to go see my movie so we shouldn't spend that much money on marketing and for that i got called arrogant and fucking crazy and shit like that so i i don't know at the end of the day it's even stuff like that contributes where it's just like Really? I have to defend the fact that I'm trying to save money now to like a fucking website that usually goes out of its way to cut the legs out of the industry. Like Hollywood wastes money and Hollywood are a bunch of whores that spend billions of dollars on pieces of shit and unoriginality and sequels and fucking remakes. And then you're like, okay, I'm making something that's completely original from anything I've ever did. And I'm not going to waste any money, but I'm going to take it out on the road and sell it myself. And rather than them going, that's right, that's the un-Hollywood way, they're like, you're the fucking Antichrist. We were, why are we attacking the studios? Look at this piece of shit. <laughs> and that was weird. That settled down after a few days once people started understanding what it was. But, you know, right, right away, people brace at the idea of something new. And I'm like, this ain't even fucking new, motherfuckers. Like, I'm reaching back to Gone with the Wind. That's what they would do. They would show their movie in a city for like a week or a month and they pack it up and they take it to another fucking city and show it. They didn't open on like 2,600 screens at once or something like that. So I reached back to fucking four walling and then just kind of put a, not even a modern spin on it. It's just like it's four walling with Twitter. Thank you very much. And for that, you know, some people are just like, no, he's, he's rebelling against the industry. He's taking on Hollywood. No, I'm not. Like, and I've read so many articles where it's like Hollywood's mad at him. I'm in Hollywood. Nobody's fucking mad. You know what I'm saying? I wouldn't have made the decision I made without talking to every 
smart motherfucker I know in this business, man, picking brains and shit. Part of the reason for doing Cop Out was so I can work with Sue Kroll, the best marketer in this business. And I, I wanted to learn as much as I could about marketing, man. Not because I'm like, I know this is coming one day, but I was always kind of searching for a better way to not spend money. Not like in general, but just specifically on my shit. Cause that was always my biggest cost as a filmmaker. I wasn't making the film. It was the marketing of the film. And that was the thing that always hamstrung us from like reaching profitability. That's why it took fucking clerks seven years to go into profit. They bought the movie for $227,000. The movie made three million at the box office. I can't even tell you what it did on fucking home video, but I had a profit statement that said not until seven years later did they see a dime of profit. And I'm not saying they're fucking criminals at all. That's just Hollywood math. That's what everybody does. It's like, well, there's this cost, there's this cost, there's this cost. You guys took a plane ride once. We had to include that. Like everything eventually has to get charged against the movie. So you watch those costs and the marketing costs accrue and climb up and go like, oh my God, I'm looking at figures that are like in the case of clerks, we were looking at figures that were twice the budget. Like Harvey was like, I'm going to spend 10 million marketing. And we were like, don't. The movie has a two in the title. Who's coming, dude? Like fucking people that saw the one without the one in the title. Like you're not going to convince a new audience to see a movie called Clerks 2. He's like, well, that's why you should call it the passion of the clerks. (laughs) And I was me hoisting on my own guitar because that's what I did call the original draft of the script. But I was like, dude, that joke's played. And I said, plus, like uh, Clerks 2 is more honest. But, you know, they, they're they not interested in honest. They're interested in fucking selling. And I'm not as good at, at selling as I am at being honest at the end of the day. And so for me, I'm just, I'm not that what they do is dishonest. But I just think there's a, a way that I could try this where I could see if we, you know, let's experiment, see if it works, see if we can, like, release the movie without spending any marketing money. Um, and fucking who knows, man, at the zero hour and shit, I may have to punt and be like, okay, we're putting a commercial on TV. But the game is to try not to. The game is to like just use Twitter, just use the podcast, just use the tour. Hopefully that spreads word of mouth and try to make back that four million just that way, honestly. Now, the other parts of the equation that like we don't really talk about and they didn't talk about in any of the articles as they they were too busy fucking the sky is falling. The once we sell foreign, we're pretty much whole on the movie. If we could sell foreign for what we think we can, we're pretty much whole on the flick. If not just on foreign, then foreign in our DVD. We've already got two fat fucking DVD offers where if I sold right now, man, we can kick back and be like, all right, that's it. I guess we're done without a theatrical release whatsoever. So for me, I'm just like, we're covered. You know, it's like we've got our investors covered in terms of like the foreign sales, the home video, the fucking TV sale. Like Epic's offered to buy the movie before we even got into Sundance, a nice TV deal. And suddenly we were like, just can we wait until we figure out what we're doing with the rest of it? So financially, like I wouldn't fucking make this move unless I felt like, all right, everyone's going to make, there's no financial fucking risk. If anything, the financial risk is we're not spending those marketing dollars. So we might not make back as much as fucking we would if we spent to make it. But my argument is you spend that money, you're just hitting the same audience. The same audience is coming. It's wasted marketing because the audience that wants to see this movie is coming to see this movie regardless. They don't have to be tricked, sold. They just have to be told when it's opening. And I can let them know when that's going to happen. So at the end of the day, I feel like, all right, let me just try this. Let me try this without spending any money. And the major difference to answer a question from an hour ago, the major difference between how we used to do it and how we're doing it now is simply that I just, I'm trying to release the movie without spending any marketing dollars. That's it.
no, 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 no. I'm sorry. That that's very kind. I wasn't like that's it. Applaud for me. I was. That's 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 it. That's basically it. It's not that impressive. Yes. First off, um, amazing film. Thank you. you. Are... It's so weird because in the fucking discussion of this movie over the course of the last week and a half, I've for completely forgotten about that most important fucking element. Like people like the movie. You know what I'm saying? Like I've been so busy, like fucking, we're going to take the movie out or defending myself from fucking jackasses who don't, who can't listen, um, or read. Um, <laughs> now, now I'm, every once in a while somebody goes, Hey man, I like the movie. I'm like, what? Oh, yes, the movie, you know? It's fun, right? So thank you for that. You are um, an amazingly uh, captivating storyteller. Thank you. And Much better with a mic in my hands, though, than a camera. I don't know. Um, the, uh, every film that you've made has, I mean, spoken, I'm sure, to me and to a whole of your audience in some way or another, uh, to an extent where, I mean, we we see our lives in your film because you share so much of your lives with us. Thank you. And being a part of this and being a part of uh, the opening of the Smod Castle and the growth of the po uh, the uh, podcast uh, network, mm. it's just been such an amazing ride. Uh, and to be a part of it with you, with uh, a majority of these people who I see on, on you know, almost daily basis. Right, right. You know, if not at the castle, online, on the forums, right. it's just incredible that is the um, cool thing see man thank you for that everyone's i sit there and i just did like an hour on business fucking talk and like even while i'm saying it i'm hating myself as i say it because i'm like i've I'm, i know i'm gonna have to say this a thousand more times i've already said it 200 times there's another thousand to say it and everything gets lost in the process about why we're here in the first place because i wanted to tell a story and when you bring it back to like the community of it all and shit and like It was a cool thing that this class kind of happened. And it happened like there was no set plan. I was just sitting there going like we showed the trailer in front of one of the podcasts one day. And I was like, wow, what if we did this like every week and shit? Like I like the kind of feedback. And I was like, I could bring the cast up and do interviews. And we just kind of made it up as we went along. And it was fun. You know what I'm saying? And like you guys made it fun just by being there. A, a sense of consistency by number one, just signing on, buying in. Number two being there every week uh, like every those seats were full we never walked into that place with the exception of like over the holidays never walked into that place going like nobody cares like you guys were there and that that's like the most important element in any project is the enthusiasm of an audience you know what i'm saying and you guys were always very enthusiastic so thank you for that well you know it that directly comes from your enthusiasm i mean everything that you do used to put so much passion to it and we understand i mean the 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 whole talk about the business it's just it's your enthusiasm and your sort of frustration with the fact that nobody seems to understand nobody seems to listen i mean you said it once and it should have taken only once for people to understand <laughs> yeah no fuck man I'm not me though that that unfortunately there's a block when when it comes to me i here's the thing like somebody was saying the other day Like, doesn't it piss you off that fucking, like, how many people just get pissed off when you open your mouth? And I was like, um, I mean, I, I get, look, I'd rather that wasn't the case. I'm like everybody else. Like, I want peace at all fucking times. I would love everybody to be cool with me. But at the end of the day, you can't have that. You can't have a 100% approval rating, especially when you're going out there with something that, like a movie or art or, you know, some self-expression. There's always going to be some motherfuckers who are like, boo, I don't like it, you know? <laughs> So you expect that kind of thing. It, it, that's not the, the, the thing that, that kind of bums me out though. Like it, 
it's just the you get to a point, man, where you're like, I I would I don't want to fucking hear it anymore. I don't want to hear how I fucked up a movie you didn't make. You know what I'm saying? And you just get to a place where you're like, dude, it's my movie. Like, uh, you didn't like it? God bless. But what are you telling me? I'm not good at my job. Like, I think I know what I'm doing. But even that shit went away. Like, that used to really bug me back in the day. After Southwest Airlines, dude, no press bugs me anymore. You know what I'm saying? You just get to a point where you're like, when fucking 10,000 people, 5,000 people are calling you fat in the headline, everything else is just a walk in the fucking park. Even, like, post-Sundance and shit, people were, like, screaming from my head and whatnot. I was just like, well, it'll go away. It did on Southwest Airlines. It'll fucking end here. It always does. Some people just get out of sorts. But somebody asked me, like, doesn't it bug you, man, that everyone likes – not everyone, but you get people that react like that to you. And I was just like, you know, I look back on fucking the last 17 years, I can't complain about nothing. You know what I'm saying? If that's the price I got to pay, some people are just like, you're not as good at your job as you fucking think. I'm like, okay, thank you. And, and that's it. You know what I'm saying? It took me a long time to learn that, and sadly – I'm learning it as I'm cresting out. You know, I'm like, oh, you learn all the most important lessons, I think, when you're on your way out the door. So for me, it's like I've gotten to a Zen place where it's just like, you know, I, I, my life is great. If I got to take, if I got to eat a little shit every once in a while, because, you know, some people want to get up in my grill about a fucking movie, nothing real. They're not getting up in my face about like, you fucking slaughtered an entire fucking race of people, Hitler. You know, like that'd be a tough thing to live down. They're getting into my face about like, you know, hey man, fucking Jersey girl still blows. I'm like, yeah, 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 but you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> yeah, I just don't even know what to say anymore. It's like, I can't say like, dude, I don't think it does blow, but tell me, brother, what do you feel about it? You know, it's just, you get to a place where, I don't know, I can eat the shit. I don't mind that because it's been a blessed life and I've gotten to do great things. And like every movie I ever wanted to make, I got to make. So if every once in a while you got to deal with some cats fucking jumping down your throat, even if what you're saying is something that they would agree with fundamentally. That's the thing that blew my mind, man. When the press that went after me about the fucking self-distribution, the same press that I would have imagined would have been like, right on, man, what a good idea. Like, let's try, like, what a good experiment to try. But because of who I am and because I think I give off a fucking pheromone, man, that just makes some people fight. Like that one episode of The Simpsons where the girl was always trying to beat up Lisa uh, the bully and shit like that. I just give off some sort of scent that some people pick up on. They're like, I don't like that fat fuck. You know what I'm saying? Like, you just have people in your life like that where you're like, I don't like that guy. And they're like, why? He's a great guy. Like, I don't like him. He just bugs me. I think I am that for a lot of fucking people. Um, but, you know, I got you guys, so I'm okay with that too. Actually, I believe all your um, responses have been so even-tempered, and I don't really hear a defense. What I hear is just your passion for the project that you've been making. Some people hear that very defensively, though. I mean, but it is. Look, you hear it as passion. They hear it as defense. Who's fucking right? Who's wrong? You know what I'm saying? Maybe it's six and one-half dozen the other in that instance. But you hear it through a filter of, I like him. They hear it through a filter of, I don't like him anymore, you know, or I never did or something like that. So... You know, again, can't get 100% approval. But the nice thing, and that's the thing, when I think about, when when I'm tempted to think about motherfuckers who don't like me, I'm always reminded of the motherfuckers that do, the people sitting in this theater, the people that like, hey, I want to, I want to build a podcast theater, and like, do it, and I do it, and y'all show up, or you know, I'm gonna make this movie, come see it, and you do it, and you come and you show up. It, that's that's been the best fucking part, and I won't miss that because that's I'm not going away from that. I'm just stopping. 
directing film, but I'm still going to be coming to you being like, please like me. You know, that part will never end. Well, thank you so much for taking us in to your life and letting us be a part of this whole experience. You're going to make me cry, dude. Uh, I, mean, I, I had a really tough day, so that, that really hit the spot. I haven't even gotten to the question yet. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I just got, you know, because I saw you out in the hallway. And it's always so difficult because I see you and I'm like, I want to come to you and tell you how great you are. But I'm like, I don't want to kind of scare him off because I get little. That would never scare me. I'd be like, tell me I'm great. <laughs> You'd be one of like two people that ever said it. So that'd be cool. But uh, <laughs> thank you. And uh, I'll, I'll wrap up the love fest a little um, and just ask. Uh, I know you've talked about, you know, uh, hit somebody being your last film. Yes. And wanting to um, produce uh, other yes. filmmakers work. Do you have some sort of plan for that in place yet, or is that still a thought that's going to be? Well, the idea is if we can get distribution right with this through Smodcast Pictures, then that would be the distribution model to use. And the thing I've thought about is like, what if we did kind of what the After Dark tour does? Like they collect six, seven movies and take them out kind of as a mini festival on the road. Now I can go to a, th- I got theater connections. I know I can put asses in seats at theaters. So if we brand it right, you know, if we turn it into a kind of indie premature Miramax of sorts, it'll never be as big as Miramax. But if we kind of brand it in some way, we're like, oh, it's Modcast Pictures. They make those kinds of things. Then we got ourselves an outlet. You know what I'm saying? Then suddenly we can take other people's movies on the road. Now, I wouldn't, in a world where I'm not making any flicks, that'd be fun for me, man. Jump on a bus, a bunch of fucking filmmakers and introduce their fucking shows and uh, you know it's like you go to a city rather than one city a night you kind of go to one place for a week show the films pack up move to another place almost like a rolling festival of sorts and at that point i mean you know some people may not think that's the sexiest form of distribution but i think most film any filmmaker worth their salt will tell you that like uh given a choice between going straight to video and playing on any fucking screen anywhere always going to go with the other screen. And I'm a guy who, thanks God, he never had to wonder what would have happened. You know what I'm saying? If the film didn't get picked up, if clerks didn't get picked up. So it'd be nice to be able to kind of make it like safe for other people. Like I had my dream taken care of right away, fucking quick. And by the time they get to Smodcast Pictures, their biggest dream hasn't come true. We're not going to be anybody's first fucking choice. You know what I'm saying? But at least we're there as a kind of a safety net where it's just like, if all else fails, dude, we might be the place to get you seen and shit like that. And I, I don't know, that's kind of maybe a bit of a like cosmic payback for the fucking good fortune that's come my way. Or it's just a way to stay involved in the game while not having to play the game myself. Just like, you know, a hockey player retires and a lot of them move up to the front office and go into management or become coaches or something like that. And kind of the way i feel right now where i'm like i got all this fucking experience i just don't want to do it myself um nor can i at this point but i can put it to work in other ways and for people who are trying to get their shit on the road and shit and also that keeps you vital you know what i'm saying like it behooves me to be involved with young filmmakers if i want to stay vital or relevant whatsoever you know what i'm saying it's for me, I've lived every I've lived every bit of credit on being Clerks guy Kevin Smith that I can. Um, sooner or later, I'm going to have to live off somebody else's fucking credit. So uh, it'd be nice to find some filmmakers, man. I could buddy up with and be like, I know that guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm with him, even though I'm 60. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, God bless you. And you keep putting out the work. We're going to keep supporting it. Thank you. Thank you so much.
Yeah, I, uh, I, I liked the, the no advertising model because, like, I feel like I've seen more of this movie than most people will going in by being here. Yeah, yeah. There's still a lot of, like, fake outs and, like, you talked about running out of squibs or, and, and blanks, but, like, you know, I didn't see any of that coming. Right. Uh, so, but what I want, what I want to know is, uh, you were talking after Sundance about trimming some more. Yeah, I did. Oh, what a great it, question. Is this the Sundance cut? Yeah, this is the Sundance cut that I just showed you guys. Yesterday, me and John Gordon sat down with the movie and took time out. And it's a weird equation. I, I, right now I want to say we took seven minutes out, but I also want to say we took 12 minutes out, but that's kind of accurate, but not accurate. As you've seen from the last piece here, there's that six minute, seven minute clip of Michael Parks as we roll credits. Um, I love that performance and it's amazing. We're going to keep a majority of it, but the problem is it's Sundance. We never saw it play in front of a real audience. And we never saw a play with credits, really, with the credits like that, with the way they finally were. At the, the screening in our house, at the end of the movie, when it was wrapped at the, at the wrap party, we had two days after we wrapped, we showed the movie. We had credits on there, but you have a house full of people that worked on the movie. Guess what each credit brought up? Woo! Everyone's, woo! So at Sundance, same kind of thing happened. First credit comes up over picture. Everyone's like, woo! Movie's over. But we got six more minutes. This motherfucker muttering to himself. <laughs> In a cell, so it's just like, oh shit, like we, in that way, I think we have to go a bit more traditional in as much as we have to give the movie a finite ending and cut to black and start our credits and let a song play because there's just no, there was a sense of like, is it done? It's not done. Wait, it's done. Oh, he's laying down. Oh no, it's not done. He's getting up. And I, you know, I, Bob Weinstein, after he saw the movie, he was just like, if you love your actor, you'll cut that end scene a little bit. And I was like, why? He's like, it's just too much. He's like, I don't care if you're Lawrence Olivier. If I'm looking at you that much, I'm sick of you. <laughs> so I was like, all right, Bob, good to know. Good point. Um, so me and John sat down yesterday and took out uh, easily seven minutes. I know that from picture to picture, seven minutes. But I say the possible 12 because we wound up cutting out of that sequence when he, when you hear the guy go, shut the fuck up. That's the logical out. That was the scripted out. Like in the script, it was just like he's in the cell singing and then somebody else shut the fuck up credits. Uh, and that was Parks idea. Parks wanted to do that. He's like, uh, the finger script's missing at the end. We got to cut to you in prison orange and you say, shut the fuck up. And I was like, uh, Michael, too many people know what I look like. And he goes, how? <laughs> Which was awesome because he's like 70 and shit. I'm like, oh, you missed that whole view of skew thing. Um, so I said, how about I just call it from off camera? He's like, all right. So we're shooting that sequence and all we wanted to do was basically him sing a little bit and then I'd be like, shut the fuck up and the credits. But instead we just kept going. We did it and then we just kept rolling. He's fascinating to fucking watch, man. It was fun and it was just like, what a creepy moment in performance and shit. But at that moment we got to end the movie. So we're ending right there where I go, shut the fuck up. That was as I sat there in the back at Sundance. That was it. Like I sat in the theater in the back at the Eccles and I sat originally as a director watching the movie. And about three minutes in, the the editor hat went back on. And I was like, shit, I could change that. I can lose this. I can treat this. I could tighten this. No whole scenes. Like I didn't take out anything wholesale, but I just took the air out of a lot of stuff. Like, for example, uh, the 17 minute fucking monologue you know michael parks goes in there and fucking devastates with a fantastic fucking soliloquy of hate it's in two parts there's the whole first part and then it's like get the kids out of here and then there's a whole second part 
And my mistake, I feel like, is there's two, one speech too many. You get away with the one, you can't get away with the second. So what I did was I got the first one. That's pretty much all intact and whatnot. Then the kids get ushered out. Then he gets through. He explains. He essentially, he, he pulls the thing off the dude, reveals the dude, kind of goes right into why it's okay for them to kill the dude, um, says where the dude came from prior to that and as much as the Internet and then we kind of get right into the him pointing and the and the sacrificing beginning. And Gordon fought me on that yesterday in the room. He's like, no, you're taking out too much. But I'm like, dude, I'm the writer. Like, I feel it. And I felt it for a while. But I wanted this. I was happy with my cut. That was the one I take to Sundance. But now that I've watched it with that audience, with an audience of complete strangers, that was our first test screening, if you will. I said, I'm comfortable. I'm not, I'm not one of these guys. Like back in the day, I'd be like, if we take out time, it's admitting failure in some stupid fucking way. But Quentin took fucking Inglorious Bastards to Cannes and it got savaged in a bunch of places. A bunch of people like, it's not very good. It got mixed reviews and shit. Quentin went back with Sally Menke. He recut his fucking movie and Inglorious Bastards is what it is today as we all know it. So fucking Quentin Tarantino, the greatest living filmmaker, you know, in our lifetime, my generation, I should say, otherwise Scorsese gets mad. Um, the greatest living generation, uh, artist, uh, director in my generation, you know, uh, can kind of feel that. And then I guess I kind of, you know, I, I validated it for me in some way. Do you follow? So, um, yeah. Does that answer or did I get lost in my answer? I did get lost. Did it cover? Okay. But wait, I didn't tell you what I cut. Yeah. So I cut five, first seven, what else did I cut? truncated that a little bit the speech and then like i said the back end he pretty much ends it shut the fuck up and then we go to the main on moe credits main on ends written directed by we don't do those up front so we save those for the back do those and then the rolling credits will begin as long as you keep park saying boy i wish you'd talk to me to the little girl yes you like that it was great wasn't it? i wish you'd talk to me sometime <laughs> Hey, uh, a lot of people in the uh, the past few months have said that it's not a horror movie. Yeah. You said it was. Uh, What's your take? Yeah, let me uh, let me I'll ask you, everybody at once. Uh, I I work for the Church Channel. I mm -hmm. thought that movie was scary as shit. <laughs> so it is a horror movie. Yeah. Uh, I I just had a, a question, a little more information about the uh, how did how how do you distribute the movie you have to buy a certain amount of prints or how do you contact the theaters or i mean isn't that isn't it interesting know. like <laughs> suddenly when you're when you're like we're going to do it ourselves you do have to ask all those questions which for years i've never had to ask like literally the other day it was actually kind of cute man we were carrying a film print to the car from my from my house to john gordon's car and it was like, you know, fucking across the street from my house, put it into the back of his trunk, close the trunk and shit. And I had this real like wide smile on. He's like, what, what's that all about? I was like, and all this time I've never carried cans of film. He's like, get the fuck out of here. I was like, I've never had to. We made a movie. Somebody bought it. I've never once had to carry cans of film. And he's just like, you're excited, aren't you? I was like, yes. You know, this is indie film. Um, and if it's, it's going to be weird. It's, uh, figuring out how to do it has been very helpful uh, with thanks to people who've reached out to us. Jonathan Searing at IFC immediately was like, we've got a bunch of screens in New York. If you want them, they're yours. I was pulling out of the parking lot at Sundance, and there was a guy who was like, it looked like the parking lot attendant. He was a volunteer. But he goes, hey, man, I got three screens in Sacramento. 
that you guys can have. And I was like, what? You own theaters? He's like, yeah, well, you think I park cars for a living? And I was like, I did. So we've been reached out to from those cats. And then there's also uh, exhibitors that are have many more screens, more well-known and shit, who we've started preliminary discussions with as well. Um, at that point, yeah, it becomes about you become kind of the studio. All the things that the studio would do for us, we have to kind of now do for ourselves, like literally everything. And when it comes to the prints, it's about figuring out how many are we making prints? Are we doing digital prints? How many places can show 35? How, do we even have 35 prints anymore? Um, what each of those prints costs, where they're going, how they get there. Every question comes back to you at this point. You know, it's like, be careful what you wish for kind of thing. I've always wanted to be in complete control and I am and it sucks because you got to answer a bunch of questions that you're like, this has nothing to do with what I wanted to do, but Heavy is the head that wears the crown. And if you want to do it yourself, you're going to have to fucking do a lot of shit that you don't necessarily want to do. But it's pretty fucking satisfying, gratifying. I've been up every morning, uh, 4 a.m. this week and the end of last week doing like phone interviews, you know, in all the cities where, where the tour is kicking off and whatnot. And even though I'm getting up at four in the morning, I don't care. Like I wake up and I feel good because other than waking up back in the day, and, you know, doing an interview at fucking four in the morning for somebody else's benefit. I know ultimately this is for our benefit, for our little project and stuff. So it, we're figuring it out bit by bit, man. Um, basically, the first thing we're going to need to do is find a bunch of screens for October 19th. And so far, it looks like we're going to be successful in doing that. Uh, then it'll be about figuring out how many prints we need and or digital prints and stuff. But again, we've got nine, ten months before we get to that point. Uh, but we, I, it, I wish I could give you an easy answer, but it's, it's one of those things that I'm learning on a fucking daily basis. And there are moments where I'm like, Oh my God, let's go back and do it the easy way. Let somebody else do this shit. But it's so gratifying. Like at the end of the day, your head hits the pillow and you're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is, this is the move. And at the very end and end of the day, it's just, it's an experiment. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, a lot of people would like to make it a lot more than what it is, but it's literally just an experiment. It's either going to work or it's not going to work. And at the end of the day, I can go the, you know, very positive route and be like, Hey man, even if it fails, the fact that we tried makes us winners. Um, or you can fucking go the other route and be like, we tried and we got fucked in the ass, man. I, that, that was horrible. I'll never do that again. It'll all be a life lesson. It'll all be a fucking story to tell. It'll all wind up in a fucking podcast, man. It's just, uh, before I leave this business, it feels like, I don't know, this is something I've always wanted to try or see if it was possible, if you could open a movie without spending all that marketing money and shit like that. I've never been in a better position to give it a shot. And in a world where I only got one movie left to make and I know I'm leaving, I might as well try all the things I want to do before I go. And this is kind of one of them. Uh, if it works, do you think you'll do the same for the next movie? If it works very well, yeah. But if it doesn't work very well, then no. I, I'd definitely go more traditional with Hit Somebody because that's the last one for me. And I don't want to make a movie that nobody winds up seeing. Like if Red State winds up being kind of like, yeah, it was moderately successful. They made money, but it's not like, you know, anybody, they didn't fucking do that Blair Witch kind of business or paranormal business where all of a sudden it came out of nowhere and went fucking crazy and shit. But, uh, you know, it's... It's still worth doing at the end of the day. I mean, I honestly, I just came down to like, I couldn't do it the other way one more time. Um, not in this instance, not when like we felt like we could maybe roll the dice and try it a different way just for shits and giggles. Could always go back to the other way on the next movie. 
Um, and I guess, you know, it depends what I want that to be. Like if this winds up working out and we can do hit somebody on our own and distribute it on our own, by all means, I'd do it. Uh, and I guess we're going to learn a lot in the next 10 months though. Thank you. Thanks, man. Um, I know you said Red State was kind of waiting on kind of like the back burner for a couple years while you're getting the cash for it. But, um, was, like, Aben Cooper's, Aben Cooper's downfall always going to be some stoners with a grudge and an iPod? Um, no. I'll tell you the original ending to the script, the one I wrote three years ago. Um, while I was writing the script, Malcolm was daring me to write the script the whole time. Like, I'd kind of reached out to Malcolm. I told him about Red State because he knew about it because it was based on me seeing his interview with Phelps in Small Town Gay Bar. He gave me the raw and cut footage. I watched that interview for an hour and change. I was like, this dude's fucking terrifying. This dude should be a movie villain, man. He's like a Hannibal Lecter and shit. So um, when I, I finished the script to Zach and Miriam and sent it off to Seth to, to read, we were waiting around. And I was like, maybe I'll try writing Red State. I sat down, literally just started writing from scene one, and I kept going. I got a good head of steam going, nice clip. And so I got done with like 20, 25 pages, and I, I found Malcolm on iChat, and I was like, hey, man, you want to read some of this? He said, all right. Sorry. So um, he starts uh, reading and shit, and he's like, this is good, man. I was like, yeah. He's like, yeah, keep going. I was like, all right. So I kept going. I'd feed him pages on iChat and shit, and he'd read them and be like, oh, shit, man. I see where you're going with it. And then I would change where I was going with it. And the very next scene, he'd be like, where the fuck did that come from? So he was kind of the dude. I kept feeding pages to all the time. We got to the point in the movie where Cooper clan comes out and faces off against the ATF. Um, and he wasn't in, you know, fucking John Goodman's face in the scene. He's saying, shoot me, shoot me. But Michael was like, I'm going to get right up into his fucking grill. And I was like, all right, what do you see? What do you mean? What's up up in his grill? He goes, let me show you. And he goes, he does what he does in the movie. I was like, that's disturbing. Um, so, um, so we're, we're kind of, uh, we're at that moment outside and I send the pages to Malcolm and he's like, Oh God, dude, what's going to happen? I'm fucking, I, what, where are you going, man? Where can you go with this? And I was like, that's the thing. I don't know. And he's like, what do you mean? I was like, I don't think there's anywhere to go but the fucking apocalypse. And he goes, there's dead silence on the phone. He goes, I fucking dare you. <laughs> and I was like, don't dare me, Malcolm. He's like, I fucking, you won't do that. And I was like, yeah, I was, I was like, no, not Mr. Jersey girl. I was like, fuck you. I, <laughs> so I was like, I'm going to write the ending. I hung up and I wrote the ending. And the ending was this. They come out, same way, speech that Cooper, give, uh, that uh, Aben Cooper gives to, to John Goodman's character, uh, to Keenan, about like fucking shoot me, G-Man, blah, blah, you're only hissing my award in eternity, shoot me, shoot me. Then the very next thing happened was Aben Cooper's chest exploded. And then fucking people standing next to him, bam, bam, all their chests started exploding. And then the ATF guy's chest started exploding. And Keenan was looking around, and the fucking sirens getting thunderously loud. And he's covering his head, ducking down as one by one, fucking everyone around him, poof, their chests are opening up. The earth cracks. The fucking sky turned to sackcloth. There was fucking locust. It started raining brimstone. <laughs> And then it went quiet and Keenan finally kind of stops and opens his eyes and looks up and you see this gigantic fucking angel with one of the five pointers on a sword and he pulls the sword out of the chest and the five pointer goes down to the ground. The angel just looks at Keenan and goes, Shh. 
and then takes off. And Keenan looks to see it take off, and as it curves, banks left in the sky, you see the four horsemen of the apocalypse. And so, and then I wrote the end. <laughs> so, I sent that to Malcolm, and Malcolm goes, you'll never do it. And I was like, yeah, I will. And he's like, no, you'll never do it. I was like, well, it's a placeholder ending for now. Let's see if we can get the money for it. We never could get the money for that one, man. And that would have been a way pricier movie. So I think it was like when John was going out to find the loot uh, the second time around. Because at one point, John went out to try to find $15 million. He, he read the script and he was like, dude, there's action in it. There's guns. There's violence. You could totally make this. This is commercial, blah, blah, blah. And then John couldn't find 15 million. I was like, no, John, it's not commercial. And so he was like, well, what could you do it for? I was like, dude, give me a million bucks. I can pull it off. I have to. He's like, no, no, no. Let's try for a little more. And we wound up getting fucking four million. But before then, he was just like, the ending, dude, the ending is pricey. You know, that's the priciest part. It's all CG and shit like that. I said, yeah. He's like, you have any other ideas? You sure you want to do that? I said, no, that was always just a placeholder ending. I didn't intend to fucking necessarily do it. It's too close to dogma. I start showing angels and shit. I was like, but I have this idea about like having my cake and eat it too. He's like, what do you mean? I was like, let me do a pass and I'll show you. And it was pretty much this. So it was the same exact thing. But at the end of the day, there were no angels. It was all real. And, you know, he's like, well, how are you going to explain the noise away? And I fucking told him, I was like, well, these dudes get this fire hydrant, the fire siren and hook it up to an without spoiling it. And, um, he was just like, write it. Let me see what it looks like. And I wrote it and he was just like, I gotta tell you, man, that's kind of cooler. And I was like, really? It's not cooler to see a giant angel with a fucking sword in a dude's chest? And he's like, well, that's cool if you like Zeppelin. But, like, <laughs> he's going for the movie. This just kind of makes sense, man. And so I wrote the scene. I was like, this is what this, his speech would kind of explain it. And what I love about that moment in the movie is that the entire film is predicated on a man not showing you something, but telling you something that happened. And that's so fucking Kevin Smith, it's sickening. You know what I'm saying? Like, that was, I looked at that and I was like, how typically fucking me? Like, rather than fucking show it, literally John Goodman sits there for about three minutes and tells you what happened. So, I don't know. I, I thought, like, even at the very basic level, there's still me kind of within that film. Um, but, yeah, it was a little too big. I don't think we could have pulled it off. But that was it. It was, it was a lot larger than life. Angels, swords, four horsemen, bleak, really fucking bleak. Hey, uh, so inspired by everything you're doing right now. Thank you. It's just, you know, amazing. I'm so excited for you. Thanks, man. Love the flick. My birthday is October 19th, so thank you for that. Right on. Congratulations. Um, on Hit Somebody, is Scott going to be returning, or is the cartoon eating up all of his time? That'll depend. Scott, you know, we and Scott were talking about, we talk about it on the next Modcast a little bit. Like at a certain point, Scott talks about his kind of retirement, if you will, as well. To some degree, his wasn't nearly as fucking like, hey, everybody, I'm stopping. But Scott had tried to stop producing since Chasing Amy. Like Scott was always like, look, I didn't go to film school to become a producer. Like I've got stories that I want to tell. I would like to try directing. And I was like, he's like, do it, dude, do it. Like I'll produce your stuff like you produce mine. Go ahead. But he couldn't do my stuff and concentrate on his stuff, you know, and he did that for so many years. And he talks about on Smodcast, he's like, you know, it becomes comfortable. He's like, at the end of the day, I could have just kept doing, producing your stuff because I was very comfortable to do it. 
doing it, but I would never then push and try to do anything for me. So he's like, I had to kind of, you know, weigh one against the other. And I figure I've done it for you a bunch of times and you're fine on your own now. So I better step aside and try to muster up passion to do something I want to do other than produce your movies. So he's been doing that for a few uh, now and he's got the cartoon kind of in the works and he's written a script or two or whatnot. But I think he's ready to kind of uh, get back to work. I don't know necessarily on my stuff. I think he's closer than ever to kind of accomplishing his goals. But, you know, if he's free and he wants to, absolutely. But he's my friend. And as much as I want, like, look, there's a part of me, it's just like, of course I want Scott there because I've known Scott my entire filmmaking career. And But on the other hand, like, my friend wants to do something that's not my movie. You know what I'm saying? Like, he wants to do his own movie. And if his journey takes him in a different direction for a little while so that he can accomplish his goals... I got to support that even if it means that like, you know, I don't get to hang out with him while I make my stuff. And it's one of those moments where you're like, you know what? Be thankful you had him for as many movies as you fucking did, especially considering like he did want out by chasing Amy and not because he was like, I hate you, but he was just like, you know, I, I, this is great, but I didn't get into this to be a fucking producer. Just the same way. I'm like, I have all this business in my head and I didn't get into this to be a businessman. Same kind of thing. And when you're creating that situation for your friend, when you create the gilded fra- the gilded cage that your friend wants to escape from, you kind of have to let go of you what you want. Like, of course, I would like Scott to produce it somebody. But at the end of the day, Scott's finally taken his journey and I can't drag him back. You know what I'm saying? Like, he's making progress. I can't be like, come back here and produce me again, just like you always do. You know, that's the same idea of me sticking around, just keeping directing flicks, even if I'm not writing them. It's just like, well, you're a director now. That's what you do. You know, at one point it was like, Scott, you're a producer. That's what you do. But he didn't want to be a producer. So as much as I would like to to be on Hit Somebody, if he's still following his Chautauqua and trying to make his shit happen, I'm not going to drag him back into my shit, man. I got, you know, if you love somebody, let them free. If they come back to you, they're yours. If not, fucking shoot them. <laughs> no, uh, so he's free, and, and 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 we still. That's the thing. It's like we fucking work together all the time. We do smodcast all the time. We talk all the time. Um, but it, but for me, I kind of have been leaving film alone for him because it's like I know he wants stuff that he wants to accomplish. He's got stuff that he wants to do, and I don't want to be the guy that interferes with that any longer. I interfered with it for like fifteen, fourteen, fifteen years while he worked on my stuff. And that's a very generous gift, but you can't expect somebody to do that for the rest of their life. I think you should make a cameo as uh, Gordo, the indignant Canadian. He definitely has to show up at least playing Gordo, yeah. Awesome. (laughs) And I think the the Pooh song should be the credit song. Which Pooh song? The Pooh song that... Oh, the fucking Book of Pooh? (laughs) Goodbye for now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it is a real Book of Pooh picture, man. (laughs) <laughs> um i've seen you spar with the the actual phelpses on twitter and yeah. they're kind of intertwined with this film uh a lot uh, yeah they are kind of the ed ed guy ed gein to this movie that ed gein was to psycho and to texas chainsaw so they'll always be kind of involved to some degree my marketing partners oh uh, <laughs> Was What was the protest like at Sundance? It was really sweet, man, because, I mean, there they are. And it's like, look, a lot of people have said, these cats aren't serious. They're just fucking doing it for money, blah, blah, blah. 
you'll hear any, it's so weird when people disparage the Phelps. I'm like, they're bad enough. You don't have to make them sound worse. You know what I'm saying? Um, so, but whether you believe that or not, or whatever you believe about them in general, when you see them standing there holding those fu- signs, it's fucked up. I don't care how many times you've seen it online. I don't care if you've seen it on the news. Facing it down is so strange because you're like, why are you doing this? Like, do you really believe this? And there's like, in, in our instance, there was this little snow hill and they were standing on top of it with two signs apiece, maybe one hung up behind their head or something as well. And they just look like, like hateful scarecrows from the old, you know, fucking Planet of the Apes, the beginning that I didn't see until Laserdisc. Um, but, but it, they just, it, it was, there's something sinister about it. You know what I'm saying? There's something, I'm not going to say it's evil or something like that, but it, it's really weird to see that kind of intolerance up close. Um, and, what made it great was the fact that there's all these kids from the high school, the Eccles Theater, um, where we showed the movie. I believe it's in a high school. I think it's uh, the high school up at Park City. If not, there's a high school. It's very nearby. Sorry, I was up doing interviews at five. Um, there's a high school very nearby. Anyway, 100 kids or 200 kids. I don't know what the report was. Maybe it was 50. But there were a lot of fucking bodies out there. Counter-protested. They like saw our press release and decided to counter-protest and whatnot. And they were holding up signs that was like, hell is fabulous or hell is hot lunch, like high school shit. Um, and, uh, and also chanting Lady Gaga lyrics back at, at the, at the Phelps and stuff. It was really fucking heartwarming. But for me, it was, uh, it was kind of fun. Like we got to make signs. Everybody in the, in the condo we were staying at was sitting around with markers. Oh, sorry. With one tongue sticking out of the side of their mouth, like, drawing these signs and, I don't know. It forced you to be creative in a dopey way because their signs are so fucking dumb that you just try to come up with equal, equally dumb signs. And the one that John Gordon had said, I'm a happy Jew. And on the back, it had a smiley face with a yarmulke cut into the top and a Star of David. So in case they couldn't read English, they could flip around to the pictograph. And then uh, Malcolm's sign said, Dick tastes yummy. <laughs> And I like that. I like that that was held up next to the Phelps's, but that was kind of cool. So I don't know. It was, it was weird seeing him in person going, God almighty, the fucking hate. You believe this shit? But at the same time, uh, it was fun. It was, uh, it was so nice listening to the kids counter protest. It warmed my heart. You know what I'm saying? Like, oh, nice. We can always count on youth to fucking fight idiocy or fucking intolerance or something like that. It was kind of sweet, but the whole thing lasted like, I felt it was like a half an hour or something like that. And somebody told me today, you were out there for six minutes. I was like, that's it? And they're like, yeah, six minutes you were there. I was like, wow, it felt a lot longer. What the Okay. It's more just a comment on the structure of the film. Go ahead. Um, very bookended, very much your style. Like, your feel in both ends feels like a transmission. Yeah, thank you. And in terms of the genre, like sort of a mismatch, but I love the classic horror feel when Aben Cooper is talking to the deputy. Mm-hmm. That was fun for me, man. Like to as a storyteller, or at least a filmmaker storyteller in this instance. I don't really get to work with that palette, those colors, those shades. You know what I'm saying? Like, you don't really have that moment where it's like, is Jay going to kill Silent Bob? You know, 
doesn't really exist in those movies. So in this movie, you can do stuff where you play with tension in a way that I never could before in any flicks, and that was really fun for me. Thanks, man. I appreciate that. If I keep yawning, trust me, it's not you. First, I just want to say that it was actually a terrifying film. <laughs> Terrifyingly bad. You're like it sucked, Kev. <laughs> <laughs> no, it, I mean, I, I, I mean, it scared me. You know, cause, good. Uh, you know, my past life, I used to like do that the internet thing and like realizing, like, dude, that could have happened. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You could have wound up in church. <laughs> <laughs> That's the most horrifying thing about fucking on Craigslist. You could wind up in church. Um, but no, but like, I, I love how like uh, the ending. Like, um, I seriously thought you were gonna go like supernatural. Like, yeah. With, I mean, I really wanted it to go that way. I was like, oh my gosh. I'm like, is he gonna do that? Um, you know why? Dogma. I don't think any other filmmaker people would be like, this is weird, but the fact I made Dogma, it makes everybody go, oh shit. <laughs> like, he might go for it, man. Oh my God, he's gonna pull a Dogma card. And then we don't. Yeah, um, but my question was, uh, I saw that your, your wifey was in it, and, um, uh, how, how was that discussion? <laughs> So I've, I've never heard her refer to as wifey. <laughs> um, I don't know if she'd like it. I was sitting there going, how would she react to it? She'd be like, motherfucker. <laughs> um, how was that discussion telling her that her she was going to get shot in the head? In that scene? Uh, it was awesome. <laughs> um, it, was, uh, it was a bad day, though, because she takes everything so fucking seriously, man. She was wearing a harness and shit, and when she gets shot, they fucking ratchet her back. So, you know, there's so much prep that goes into falling down on film. It's crazy how much rehearsal they go through um, to get it right or something like that. And she did it. She had the little bullet wound point painted on her head, and then we would cover it with flesh and then in post kind of take it off. Um, so she was, uh, she did it. It was great. We did every take, you know, of her in the harness, finally found one that I thought would work in the movie. And then we were done moving on from her getting shot. And we were just doing a, a, not quite a pickup, but another angle of her, uh, just firing the gun. And she was like, well, can I fall afterwards? And I was like, no, cause you're not wearing your harness. So just fire. All I need is shots of you firing the gun from this perspective. She's like, okay. And it's a shot in the movie where she gets killed. So she's shooting the gun and then suddenly no harness, no fucking announcement, no being told. She hated her previous deaths, so she wanted to do it better. And she did it without a harness or the rig or the stunt people. She just literally threw herself fucking back. Now, this wouldn't be a problem except her head landed less than a fucking this much of an inch from this pipe, metal pipe sticking out of the roof. And the stunt guy fucking freaked. The stunt coordinator fucking freaked because rightfully so. Like, she wasn't supposed to do that. But, you know, she was just like, did that look better? And I was just like, you fucking dummy. Like, you could have just got fucking killed, man. Look better. What are you, crazy? She's like, I don't like the way the other ones look. Um, but she's difficult. It's always difficult working with Jen because she's the, Jen's the only person on the planet that could, like, push my buttons, man. You know, a good and bad. Um, and so when you're on a set, it's usually bad. You know, she usually finds something to be kind of, like, outraged by or something she's mad about you for that, like, you gotta carry on through the fucking, uh, show and whatnot. It, it can be a bit trying. But she, uh, in that instance, she was so damn sweet and giving because she couldn't wait to die in a movie. 
And she just wanted to do the best possible death she could. She wasn't happy with the ones that we did. So she kind of took it upon herself to do it. But like nearly almost fucking got killed. And what a hard, like, you know, whatever happened to Jen? She died on red state. You know, like (laughs) what a horrible fucking sentiment that would be to have to share. But, uh, she, uh, she had a good time. I had a good time having her around and whatnot. Um, she was, it was tough for her because she's in those chapel scenes and she's an atheist and has never had a God background and shit. So I would say stuff like, well, you know, she's like, what should I be doing? I was like, well, just like pray, do some praying and stuff. And if you watch her, well, you don't see it. You see the tail end of it, but I've got the footage where I'm rolling on her and she's trying to figure out what to do in a church, um, which she has no concept. And she was like, you know, I said the pray thing. So she's sitting there, she goes like this. <laughs> like she's about to do yoga and shit. I'm like, that ain't how they pray in church, hon. So there was a little more direction necessary there to go over and be like, do this. Good thing is my wife's real creepy. And um <laughs> she is. And it plays well in the movie. Like the scenes where we, the shots we cut to her, we're dragging Kyle out of the cage and putting him on the cross. She just loves it. Like you look at her face and she seems like she's enjoying it. And Parks really enjoyed that part of the performance. He's like, everyone else is acting like it's a goddamn tragedy. These people are getting killed. Your wife's the only one that understands a goddamn horror movie and she should be smiling, you know? <laughs> and I was like, thank you, I think. Um <laughs> Jen was just like, she kind of like has a smirk playing and stuff. And I don't know, it just worked out for me because she wound up being kind of the most insidious of them. She seems to enjoy it so fucking much. Uh, but it was fun. But I'll be, I'd be lying if I didn't tell you. It's kind of like every screening, if I'm here and she gets shot, I involuntarily cackle out loud. <laughs> like in a way where the first time it happened, she looked at me like, why are you doing that? And I was like, I don't know. It's just fucked up. Look how hard you go back. And also like the blood spatter and the sound effect that the, the, um, sound guys put in. I love cause it doesn't sound like classic movie, like, or something like that. It's literally just, and she's dead. And I'm like, Oh my God, she was just alive. And now she's dead. <laughs> Um, and then there's this, you know, there's the weird wife connection and you think about every fight you ever had and <laughs> watching her get plugged in the movie, you're like, good. You know? <laughs> so I don't know. It's a, a range of emotions, but it's, it's always cool having her around. And the good news is she's never been one of these cats. It's like, give me a big part. She just wants to be there. She's like, you put everyone you know in the movie. Why not me? I'm like, good point. And she's like, plus if I'm there on set, there's a better chance I'm going to see you than if I'm not in the movie at all. And I'm like, always good point. And this was kind of the perfect role for her, man. Like no lines, just kind of gets to sit there. But the weird thing was like, she made us go to the million mom March. Like when Harley was one on Harley's first birthday. And that's that March where you, you know, you're protesting guns. It's basically about gun control and shit like that. My lady's like way anti-guns, hardcore, has been forever. We make this movie. You couldn't pull a fucking gun out of her hands, man. She was like, are we doing a shooting scene today? And I was like, I thought you hated guns. She's like, well, real guns, not like this. And I was like, these are fucking real guns. You're just shooting blanks and shit. You couldn't pry the gun out of her hand, man. She was always wanting to fire it and shit like that. It was like Sarah Palin. <laughs> But uh, it was good. I, you know, I enjoy having her around all the time. This is nice because I have somebody to fuck on the set at all times. You know what I'm saying? If she's there, that means I'm getting laid. And that's good. Mike over here. Yeah, there we go. Um, as you fell in love working with these new actors, was it hard on the days where they died? 
<laughs> I, I, I couldn't get over Kyle Gallner. I was weeping for weeks on that one. No, every time they died, I enjoyed it. You know what I'm saying? Like, I love the deaths because they're so fucking, like, out there and sudden. Like, particularly Kyle's, I think, is, like, the one that gives me the greatest kick because nobody is expecting it. And suddenly you're just like, no! You have the same reaction that he does. I kind of liked it. But there was never once somebody where I was just like, sad to see you go. You know what I'm saying? Like, I liked working with them all, but when they were done in the movie, they were done. That didn't, that didn't really affect me. And I didn't really confuse my feelings for their character's peril with who they are. Um, but I did, like, there were people I hated to see go. Like, I hated when Parks was done because I loved watching Parks play Evan Cooper. Just the way he chose to say things and whatnot. I remember writing those lines, like, three years prior, imagining what it would sound like when he said those things. So, like, watching it come to, to come to life and then watching him do better than the ones I heard in my head was always really fucking cool. Um, but, you know, that was kind of sad. When Goodman was done, that was kind of sad, but never when the characters were killed. Those two weren't killed. I'm giving away a lot of spoiler information. Hey, sir. Uh, hey. I just want to say, first off, thanks for uh, not giving up and finally making it. Thank you. It took a while. It took a while. And the credit goes to John Gordon, man, because uh, he went out there and lumped it and tried to find the money and sat through all those meetings and negotiations and paperwork and all that shit. I'm just a guy. I would literally the whole time I was like, you tell me when and I'm ready to go any minute. He had to do all the heavy lifting. I just got to show up and be like, action. Uh, quick question. Uh, best Malcolm on set story. <laughs> best Malcolm on set story is Malcolm was supposed to be in the chapel. And we have a fucking size 5XL, uh, uh, five points Trinity church shirt that he was supposed to be wearing. He was, uh, a dude who was supposed to be kind of solo in the back, but obviously part of the family and shit. Just one of the heavies and, and whatnot. Uh, no pun intended. And, um, he wound up, uh, bailing to, he had to go screen his movie, uh, Bear Nation at a festival or something like that. So he wound up kind of going like, oh, I got to do the responsible thing. Even though he wanted to be in the movie, he was like, oh, I got to do the fucking responsible thing. And then he went off and did his thing. And then he came back and we were shooting the chapel already, you know, and, and we were off and running. I was showing him the cut footage and shit like that. And uh, he focused on this one kid in the chapel who for some reason he thought had replaced him <laughs> because that kid was wearing kind of a similar design of the of the five points t-shirt same color and shit so malcolm's watching the scene and he goes just like well at least i feel a lot better and i was like what do you mean he's like well you couldn't fucking replace me so you put a kid in there instead and i was like dude that kid's not playing your part He's like, what do you mean? I was like, that kid was always going to be in the scene. Did you think a kid was standing in for you and shit? <laughs> and he stopped talking for a few days. <laughs> but yeah, he was around the whole time. God bless him. He was always a, a, a real guy, a hard fucking strong shoulder to lean on, so to speak. He's uh, Malcolm is full of boundless enthusiasm and whatnot. Or at the very least, he's he's full of enough energy to sit on the bus and be on the Wi-Fi all day long. It was just pretty much what he did while we were shooting. <laughs> Thanks again, sir. Thank you. At what point did you decide uh, in the process that you weren't going to have a soundtrack? What a great question. Um, we, I was editing, and I think I got done with like the final pass of my first editing round. Um, right before that screening at the uh, at the um, 
rap party that I started talking to John going, I think we could get away without doing any music. And he was like, what do you mean? I was like, follow me on this. If you put music in, you just make people comfortable. That's a bullshit convention. Not saying like, oh, nobody should ever use music. But it's a bullshit movie convention that tells people how to feel. It telegraphs emotion. Um, in horror movies, it tells you when to be excited. It tells you when to relax. or tells you like, ah, something's happening right now or something like that. And I just wasn't really into like uh, audience manipulation on this movie. I felt like, you know what, man? Let them sit there and fucking take it. You know what I'm saying? Don't let them be safe with like, here's the music that makes you know that everything's okay now. Or here's music to tell you something may be happening soon or something thrilling's coming up. Like, let's leave them no path, no fucking map, and let them feel how they have to feel. Like, you're jumping loyalties on this flick a lot, I think, when all is said and done. Like, at one one moment, I get you to sympathize for the Coopers. And that's like, how fucking amazing is that, man? Rarely do you sympathize for the fucking bad guy. But the movie is designed to kind of get you questioning, you know, your humanity vis-a-vis their humanity to, to some degree. God, what was your fucking question? I just got lost in the. What was it? Uh, you've answered it. I was. I was just wondering. What was it though? I got to make sure. I got to. Uh, what, what? At what point did you decide you weren't going? Soundtrack. To- thank you. So I'm sitting there in the edit with John. I'm going. Let's not do music. And here's why I think it'll be really effective. If there's no music throughout the whole flick, by the time we get to those horns at the end, it's gonna fucking play because you're not used to hearing anything kind of sonic or anything kind of like sonorous or something like that or a long sustaining note. There's been no music. There's a little needle drop in the car. That's gone right away. In the sheriff's station, you hear some background music, but that's it. So I was like, I think the trumpets will really fucking punch people, grab them in the gut if they haven't had music the whole movie because suddenly this is the first time you're hearing some notes. Thank you, though. You've uh, really come off the wall since Station X. You were a wallflower back then. I was. I, I was at Station X. I was much quieter. <laughs> that was awesome, man. I was like passing a bucket of water, put a <laughs> old-timey fire hydrant shit. That moment with the horns really is a punch in the gut. That When that moment hit, I was like, holy Fuck, now it's the scariest movie ever. <laughs> right. They're right. They're fucking right. Right. Now, that was, but that was the problem with changing my ending. Like, I remember a friend of mine goes, what are you going to say when people ask you what the movie's about? And I was like, what do you mean? It's a horror movie. And he's like, well, what do they ask you? Like, what you mean by, like, you have these people, these deplorable people who believe in God and all these, like, supernatural things. And at the end of the movie, you say that they're right. And I was like, yeah. You know, he's like, but that doesn't make sense, Kevin. I was like, well, I'm Catholic. I believe in God and they're religious. They believe in God. So obviously we have some weird connection of some sort where it's like we do share a common God. They just worship him way differently than I do or something like that. And he's like, I don't think that's going to be enough. I think people are going to want to know. And I was like, ooh. And at that point, I don't want to, you know, if people want to know, I don't necessarily have the answer. But a couple of years later, when I was able to kind of change it, that took that element away altogether. You know what I'm saying? Like hearing, I get to have my cake and eat it too. You hear the horns and you're just like, holy shit, he's going supernatural. But then we get to be like, not really, you know. Yeah, no, I get that. It just seemed like that was the scariest moment for me. Right on. Was that right then? And you don't have to believe it, but it's almost like a Marvel what if comic. What if these motherfuckers are right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And... Now, I know budget was part of that. 
made you think it would change it. And yeah, yeah. The connection to dogma. Yes. But a, would you change anything about the film now? You finished it, and B, now that there's always a director's cut Blu-ray and special effects get cheaper over time, do you think you ever would tag that on again and go back to it and see the original ending? Yeah. No, <laughs> that was always to me a placeholder. You know what I'm saying? Like it. It just seemed unrealistic that anyone would want to make it. And it seemed unrealistic that I'd want to direct it. Cause like once I wrote the earth cracks, I'm like, who's going to do this? <laughs> You're like, I don't want to do it. I like mine better. Cause it's kind of, it's the Kevin Smith ending. Like it literally a dude explains to you what happened, you know, tells you a story about the shit that happened. So I don't know. Like I'm glad the movie was low budget that kind of forced a change like that early on. But even if we'd had the money, I think ultimately we would have wound up going with something a little more real world. Like that's what I kind of dug about the movie. It was real world the whole way. And then suddenly at the end we got giant angels and that just felt like a huge cheat. So I don't know. I don't think I'd ever want to reshoot it or anything. Was it, is there anything you would change about the film now? Yeah, I took out – at the time I was talking about taking out. Um, but no, but other than that, just the, the time and that, that was only because – I was sitting there watching it with 1,200 people listening to reactions and I was seeing air that I could take out or, ooh, this would be more effective or that line killed in a way I never thought it would and line that came after it made them stop listening to the line that came before and now they're distracted. Just those kind of changes like that but nothing like, you know, oh, I'm putting music in this motherfucker now, you know, and it's going to be colorized or something like that. Thank you. And last thing is, Jersey Girl doesn't suck. That's one of my favorite movies ever. Thank you. It's, there's so many movies about how a mother relates to their child but there's so few that nail what it's like to be a dad. Thank you, so thank dude. You that. that means a lot, man. Thanks. I appreciate that. Hey, let's hear. I love the flick. Thank you, sir. Uh, I was wondering, uh, now that you're going in depth talking about the flick, if you would talk about the uh, LAX scene and what that was supposed to be. Um, was it LAX or was it Long Beach Airport or something like that? I forget where it was going to be. Essentially, it was the opening scene in the movie, uh, no dialogue. Uh, you saw uh, basically uh, people kind of, uh, had, they, Travis and his mom were dropping his grandmother off at the airport. There was a lot of like looking at the guys holding guns and shit that they do in the airports now, the National Guardsmen. Um, there you saw in the background the guy who was on the cross. I was wondering, um, Hit Somebody is like the first uh, script that you're actually writing, like once, because um, you had mentioned you had turned in Red State and Zach and Mary at the same time. And um, they passed on it. I mean, now that you got, but since you're writing Hit Somebody and like, you know, after, according to Smartcaster, after Zach and Mary premiered, you kind of went through this, you became a full-time stoner. <laughs> I was just wondering... How do you feel like 
it has affected you creatively differently this time around when you're writing Hit Somebody? Um, yeah. In writing, it's amazing. I mean, I ain't gonna lie, man. Fucking that Hit Somebody's written on pure passion and could you yeah could you just kind of describe that like i want to know like are you like the type like to like you know have a like smoke a little bit start writing and then like or are you like the type to start writing and then smoke afterwards as a reward or (laughs) and it's just like a massive write session the whole time and just basically go from the end it's nice because that removes all the inhibitions Oh, also, um, watching you every week, I've kind of seen you wither away, like you're doing a good job. <laughs> like, like, I mean, like there's definitely difference between like when I first saw you and now, I mean, keep it up. You're doing great. I was, I didn't even, I haven't been, I, I mean, I, I kind of we went out and tried to drop some weight in the mouth, like we started eating last week. And then uh, Malcolm hasn't been around that much because he went back for hours and stuff. And so I hadn't really been thinking about exercising, dieting, losing weight, but we've just been kind of on such a good clip that I didn't wind up going back to anymore. I just wound up like the Weight Watchers thing was awesome for portion control teaching. That's all I've been training. To normally I'd sit there with a box of cereal, eat the whole thing while watching a TV show, then eat my real meal after. And so now I got to a place where I could kind of like, you know, eat like this turkey dinner thing they make, like 200 fucking calories. And it looks like three spoonfuls of food, three spoonfuls of mash, three spoonfuls of turkey. It looks like it's never going to be enough, but I'll be enough to eat it. And they're like, oh, well, when it's done, they're like, oh, I can go for it. Like, technically, I don't really need more food, but there's a part of me that doesn't interact with my stomach, you know, where the stomach says, we're done. My head's like, just keep going, we give a shit, you know? So now I've learned to kind of turn off the just keep going, where you give a shit, and just kind of portion control. That's, that's kind of, it's really that, it's about shrinking the portions. Right, and not eating like an American. Yeah, and like you're, you know, staying away from the stereotype that, you know, stoners, all they do is eat or whatever. Know, you're, you know. Thing, when I became <laughs> a stoner, I realized I got to do so many things to counteract the label that you're doing it. About being like, I'm a stoner. And um, like even today, there's a, a piece on the blog on the red statements that was uh, Kim Masters for the Hollywood Reporter sent me a bunch of questions. And um, I sent them to her, I guess, too late for a deadline. She was too late. So I put the answers up. But um, I'll talk about it. What were we just talking about? That's right. So, <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Uh, in the piece, she goes, uh, she says something to the effect, she's talking about cop outers. It's up on, you can see it on the blog. And she says, uh, somebody said that you were, you know, fucking too stoned throughout the movie or too high or something like that. Or smoked too much weed. Somebody said you smoked too much weed during the movie. And so I was like, how does one answer this question? And then I thought about it and I kind of answered with going, okay, if I did indeed smoke too much weed, 
that how could I have, and I just listed the things I did, which included bringing the movie in under budget and on schedule, Carnegie Hall, not only selling it out, but playing it, the Walter Gretzky Street Hockey Tournament, that's the first time I played hockey in 15 years, between the pipes, and I played three fucking full games. Um, all the tweeting that I did, it's not like I fell off the face of the earth while I was fucking shooting the movie, I was tweeting during the movie, and I was interviewing on the radio, still doing podcasts, you could track me and hear me and see how not stoned I am. So I was like, well, I can't tell you whether I smoked too much weed, but here's all the things that I did accomplish in that time. Instead of not being said, is there really such a thing as too much weed? Um, she didn't answer. <laughs> I'll ask her tomorrow. All right, thanks. Thanks. Um, Scott Beggs, I'm the managing editor of Film School Rejects, and I wanted to say thank you for having the screening. We we talked for um, about an hour and a half, almost a year ago, on the anniversary of the release. Oh no, it was uh, it was uh, shooting the shit, yeah. And I was in New York at that time, and it was the what anniversary? For for when you uh, when you sat in the back of uh, of a theater. Uh, in which in which no one was watching Clerks and you cried silently to yourself. October third. Yeah. The anniversary of the screening that we had at the IFFM mm -hmm. the Angelica Film Center, um, and I forget what anniversary it was, but I want to say maybe the fifteenth or something. Like yeah, it was it was an odder number. Yeah, it was one of those. And I was I'd been in like fortuitously I was in New York at that time, so I could take my wife take a ride with me down to. Uh, to the Angelica and and it was weird. I went and sat in the same fucking theater where the movie had gotten the movie didn't even get bought, where it played for the first time. And where I sat there for the first like ten minutes of the movie going, Nobody's gonna buy this, like nobody's in the theater. Why do these motherfuckers keep cursing so much? Like why did I spend all this money on this? And you know, and then cognitively reframed it and said, you know what, man, this is like what film school is pretty much and you just went to film school and, and you know just pay the bills off and that'll be that. So it was weird. It was kind of neat to be there, and I, I was kind of sitting in the theater at one point and just kind of rolling some tears. Man, it was a long, strange fucking journey from the kid who had gone to that theater the first time with the movie. In any event, Scott talked to me when I got home from that. Like we were supposed to talk about the book, but Scott wound up getting a really great interview because I was like, "Guess what? It just happened to me." You know, so we talked about that. In any event, Scott. <laughs> yeah. It's a good segue. Um, obviously, this is, a, this is a vastly different movie than what you have done in the past, uh, and especially starting with Clerks. You know, if you if you map this out, um, and my my question, the thing I find most intriguing, especially throughout all these questions, is uh, the ending. And I don't want to I don't want to spoil anything. Although this conversation has uh, delved pretty deep. They they've uh, they've heard the movie, uh, but um, you know in broad strokes, uh, I'm, I'm interested because uh, you know you had a placeholder ending. Uh, a lot of writers will know their point B before they start and head that direction and go there. Uh, the movie feels cohesive that way, and uh, in that last moment, you know, without going into what it is, after you've uh, after you've created a narrative about the religious and and in a lesser way about the government. 
you know, the button line you end on is kind of a philosophical line in the sand. I mean, it's a strong line. John Goodman's exit. Where he completes the quote. And that's, I mean, that is absolutely, uh, this, here's a man who is on the, on the dole. Oh, well, never, never mind. But, but, you know, in this, in this, Mm-hmm. Right. Well, now to- totally spoiled now, but um. I watched the play Sunday, and I always felt kind of at the end of mine. Just like, you know what? He took that out, and John was like, "How can you take that out?" I was like, "Think about it. It's better to just end on him going to stranger if they just plain believe that he cut the fucking homeboy in the jail scene. It's a little more poetic." And so he was just like, it took a bath. It's so funny. Like, I had to fight John to make a lot of cuts last night because I'm an editor. That's in my fucking blood. Like, you look at, I look at the films I've done now. I spent a long time as a writer. In the middle of my career, or maybe in the last two or three flicks, I've become an editor more so than just a writer. Still not a director. I hope I hit somebody. That's the one I, that's why it feels like thesis project to me because I hope to. By the end of Hit Somebody, be able to step back and go, like, I did become a director, you know? Like, I did it all. Right now, particularly on Red State, I feel more like a really good editor. Like, I didn't direct those performances. You think you're going to get up there and tell Michael Parks, like, do it better. You know what I'm saying? Like, no way. Like, that dude came loaded for bear. When you work with a caliber of talent like this, they're all fucking good. You don't really have to do much. Just kind of stay out of their way. So what I was doing mostly on the set was looking for all the shit to cut together. I was just sitting there going, all right, there's that moment, there's that moment. I'm like a TV director. That's all they do. Like Jim Burrow sits on a set and goes like, got that shot, got that moment, got that moment, bang, bang, moving on. So I would sit there and just not say bang, bang, moving on out loud, but in my head be like, got that, got that, bang, bang, moving on. You know, that's what I do. I was collecting shots and whatnot. And I feel like in the beginning, all I would do is write. Now all I do is kind of think about editing. And I'm kind of hoping on the last one that I actually do step onto that set as a full-blown director. By the time it's done, I feel like, yeah, I was definitely, I directed that. That'll be my, my you know what I'm saying? Like, I've been called a director for fucking years, and I've been called not a director for years. But I will truly feel like a director only if and when hit somebody is kind of what I hope it'll be vis-a-vis what I hope Red State was editorially. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Sure. No, I think it makes sense. And uh, oddly enough, it doesn't negate. Did it? I got a little slice Okay. Can you repeat all of that again? <laughs> Did you get any of that? At the tail end? Um, go ahead. It actually doesn't negate my, my, yeah, exactly. Um, and I don't think, you know, I'm not an, a scientist, but I don't think there is too much wheat medically, so. I know, right? Yeah, I've read the studies. Um, but, uh, the, the question I have, you know, extends to the, the f- final scene itself, just uh, that entire conversation, the entire storytelling too, and even where you're leaving the film with John Goodman's line as well. It's similar, not as heavy handed. The hammer's not there. But but the moment's still there, and I'm curious, uh, you know, if you didn't have that in mind while you were writing the rest of it, you know, did you at least while you were writing the rest of it have a tone for what you were going for in the ending, or did you see sort of, 
Yeah, I mean, as opposed to angels killing everyone, did you have sort of an idea of where do I want to leave the audience at the end of this journey? Um, yeah, well, I mean, I guess in a world where in the original ending where it was apocalyptic, I guess the place I wanted to end them was like, ha ha. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then, you know, I got a little bit mature about it. And the place I think I wanted to leave them with, um, here was, was kind of like, uh, I don't know. I mean, I'm, I'm not a political person and I certainly don't have the answers. I just wanted to kind of hold up a mirror. You know what I'm saying? And, I, I don't know where I leave them at that point. I, I think they should kind of be feeling a little unsettled by the time it's all said and done. And yeah, of course, everyone will feel unsettled because of the murders and shit. But I just think it's crazy that people are like, oh, they're so bad because they kill people. It's like, what about all those horrible fucking signs? That's even fucking worse to some degree. Well, maybe not. Death is worse. Um, but still, it's pretty fucking bad. I, I don't know. I'm not quite sure. Like, I, I certainly didn't want anybody. That's why I felt it was easy to cut that line. Because I'm like, that's not me. You know what I'm saying? Number one, I didn't write that line. That's a famous quote. Number two, boy, Keenan comes up with a return quote awfully fast. Like, he's always been in the back of his pocket. And number three, it's way more political than I ever intended the film to be. You know what I'm saying? Like, to me, I, I've been saying it online forever. It's a horror movie. Like, I know there's some... There's, you can say, like, oh, it's about moral relativism or immoral relativism or it's about fucking, like, you know, America's uh, dark little heart. But to me, it's just a horror movie. Like, you know, it's, it's, it's like a Texas chainsaw. Um, it just has a little bit more on its head, just, or on its mind, just because it's a little more relevant, just because we all know the Phelps family. But other than that, it's just kind of space on its own. There is a little bit. And that's weird because I never watched The West Wing, but I know what you're talking about. Is he really? That's right. Oh, yeah, he was. Goodman did. I'd heard that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He was awesome. God, I love John Goodman. <laughs> I do. I, I swear to God, like, that's the dude you want to grow up to be, man, is John Goodman. He's so comfortable in his own skin, and he didn't get there easily, you know what I'm saying? He lived a life to get to the point where he's he's at, but he's the only dude. I've said it before, man, and I'll say it everywhere because you got to shout out the great ones, the good ones, the good people that show up and want to do it and shit. John Goodman stands in for himself. I've never seen that. Fuck, I've been doing this almost 20 years. I've never once been an actor who's like, I'll stand in for myself. Like, basically, when you're lighting a scene, I'm sure some people in the room know, some people don't. Let me re-explain. If you're shooting a sequence, let's say I'm shooting Scott here. We're setting up a bunch of lights that are fucking hitting him from a bunch of different ways so that he's lit, looks presentable, doesn't look fucking pasty, looks bright like everyone should in movies. Put a camera fucking here and we start rolling. When we're done with that, we move all that other shit, go do it over here or somebody else and whatnot. But let's say Scott's the star of the movie. And he's like, I can't stand here and be lit. I need to go text my agent. He goes off to his trailer, does very important things. And this guy comes over here and sits in Scott's place. And that's his stand-in. And that's who we're lighting. He's usually, the, or she is usually the same height. Usually complected hair is kind of the same. If they're bald, you get a bald person. And you're lighting that person. And then when it's time to act, the actor comes back. It's like, thank you. And that person steps away. And the actor goes back into their space. And you shoot the scene. Every actor on the planet has a stand-in if there's a movie with any budget whatsoever. It's not unorthodox. It's the fucking standard. John Goodman, the only actor I ever met who we were on set. And I was like, John, we got 15 minutes. You can step off, go back to your trailer. We're just going to light. And he's like, I'll stand here. I'm good. And I was like... I'd let him stand there for a few minutes and observe from the sidelines. 
because I'd never seen anything like it. And then finally I went back to him. I was like, it's cool, man. We got somebody to stand here for you. We got that much money on this movie, like enough for a stand. And he's gone, it's cool. I like being here. I'd rather just be here on the set if that's all right with you. I was like, fuck yes, of course. And he would just stand in for himself, man. I was just like, that, that is cool. That is cool beyond cool, man. And he wasn't sitting there like being distracting to people and shit. They were still getting their work done. But he could sit there and talk to them and play with them if they wanted. Or he would sit there and read. Or he'd sit there and think and study, but he would just basically stand in for himself, man. I love that. I thought that was so fucking amazing. I worked on a movie as an actor. Even I didn't stand in for myself. You know what I'm saying? So being around him was a positive influence. He came to us very thin. He'd lost a bunch of fucking weight at one point. So uh, he, I remember he was telling me, I was like, how'd you do it? He's like, I just ate less and started exercising. You should try. He's going, mate, you'll feel better. I can't tell you how much better you're feeling stuff. And so when we were all wrapped, November 1st, I kind of kick-started my diet, and it was because of John Goodman, man. And so, you know, I, that's a an actor who not only gives you a stellar fucking performance, but gives you dieting tips. That's a guy, that's a guy you want in your life, you know? Totally good dude. We good? Oh, shit. There's more. Hey, let's pass the mic down here. We got to get out of here soon, right? No? Okay. We're here all night. Is it just the one mic we're working on? Okay. Hey, so I have two quick things to ask you. Firstly, um, if you could explain uh, how and why you chose the name Red State for the movie. Um, could blood, red blood, blood state. Blood state sounded stupid. <laughs> red state is a term people seem to know and should just seem like kind of like a clever, a clever title to me, double entendre and whatnot, or something like that. Um, but not political, obviously. Um, I was kind of shocked at first to hear that that your next film would be your last film, uh, and it got me thinking about other people who have kind of stepped away in their prime. And one of the big ones is John Hughes. Um, so yeah, so so I was uh, curious if if when he passed, if that kind of had some effect on on you and kind of making up your mind about this. Um, no, but it did play some kind of role. I said from the jump, man. I think I was like two or three films in, and in every interview, I was like, I feel like I got ten films in me, and when I'm done, I think that's it. So I knew early on, man, I don't know if it's because I made some sort of fucking deal with God and or the devil, and it was only for a 10-picture deal or something like that, but I always knew that I had like kind of 10 there, and I'd been saying it from that point. Um, I ran, I, I met John Hughes's wife and his kid, two of his boys, um, at the screening of the Breakfast Club that we had at Lincoln Center, not Lincoln Center, but at the Paris 4 Lincoln Center for the Film Society of Lincoln Center. And, um, she, uh, at one point we were just bullshitting and she was filling me in and on stuff and wonderful fucking lady. And, uh, I said, what, uh, what was he doing toward the end? Like what, what'd you guys spend the last few years kind of up to? And she goes, uh, John planted trees. And I was like, what your backyard? She's going, no, all around Illinois. John planted a hundred thousand trees and 200,000 shrubs. And I almost started crying. You know, I mean, there's just something nice about it. like, like John Hughes 
his dream came true and he made these movies that profoundly affected a fucking generation of people, including myself. And his great reward was he just wanted to go plant trees. I was like, wow, you can step away. There's something else. It doesn't just because you're in doesn't mean you got to do this until you die. And I know that's like for some people, it's a tough concept to swallow because they're like, you can't. What do you mean? Walk away from you can't fucking walk away. They get outraged because you have the how dare you fucking give up something that cool. But like it's because it's that cool that you want to give it up. It's because you love it so much that you realize that it's time to stop. You know, I want to stop while I still love it. And there is a few moments there over the last few years where I wasn't sure I loved it anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like on the last movie, I really wasn't sure that I, I loved it. I mean, I love that crew because they really bonded and came together in a big, bad way. But I, I don't know. The, for me, I wasn't as passionate anymore. and It just wasn't me anymore. Not like, oh, I wasn't making the films, but the guy who fucking got into it wanted to write movies and direct movies. And now I've become a guy that's run out of things to say. And so I don't think I should just stick around making movies just because like I was, I got in the club. You know what I'm saying? Like, I don't want to be the last guy to leave. I, I'd like to be the first one to kind of go out and leave him going, where did that guy go? Wasn't he here a minute ago? But still it went by in a blink, man, like nearly two fucking decades. And, but at the same time, it's stupid shit that you can't even qualify. And maybe it was like what John Hughes was going through too. I got a cool job that affords me the ability to be around my kid more than it would, more than I would if I was working like at the post office, like my father or something like that. So I've been around my kid growing up and that's been really nice. I haven't been around my kid nearly fucking. My kid is 11 years old. She's out of my house in six years. She's anything like I was or Jennifer was. She's going to start. Her skate is beginning now, man. It's going to get a lot more intense in about six years. And there is less time that her in the house than we have had with her in the house since the beginning and all that time i've been sitting there making movies you know what i'm saying that's great i'm not bitching about it but at this point in my life i'm more interested in hanging out and having a conversation with my kid than like all right man let's set up this medium shot again like i've done it it's been great and shit i steven soderbergh seems like he's dropping out as well he wants to go do paintings and shit he's been doing it longer than me about two three years longer than me 89 he kind of started and he probably started even before that 89 was the first one that got picked up noticed but Soderbergh somewhere gave this quote I forget where it was but made me laugh he goes I just can't get it up to do one more over the shoulder shot you know what I'm saying like in the beginning man like well I didn't do over the shoulder shots but I could get it up for doing anything because it was like woo but after doing it for 20 years you're just like it's just variations on a theme man now I'm just I've made a movie, and then I made a movie again, then I made a movie again, then I made a movie again. It just keeps happening. And if I don't stop it, it'll just keep happening whether or not I want it to. You know, it's step off the treadmill and let somebody else jump on for a while. I've had a nice bunch of attention. I've built a nice career off of it. Um, some people are like, hey, man, you got enough money? Fuck you, money to quit? No, I don't. I'll be honest with you. Um, and this, if I was going to quit, this is really not the fucking time. The time to quit would have been about five years ago when the money was really lucrative and green. But just because there's no like financial fucking security doesn't mean there's no, you know, reason not to step away. It's, it feels worse to like, I'll stay in and just kind of keep collecting the nice checks and, you know, I'll become an elder statesman filmmaker. You know, I've earned my stripes now. I've made 10 films and motherfuck anybody that has something to say about it, good or bad, because I'm my own blah, blah, blah. 
not interested, man. Like I did it and it was great and I fucking loved every second of it. Like you have no idea how much I love that Buisk universe so much. Even thinking about it, I get choked up. It was so much fucking fun, but it's done. Never going to go back. Can't ever be the way it was. You know what I'm saying? They end those sitcoms. There's a reason they don't go back to them. And we all want them to like do one more fucking season. Tell more stories. It's just not, not here. You know what I'm saying? Like I've, I've left room for like, I'll do the view of universe and a TV show because now on cable, you can curse your full fucking head off. When I started, you couldn't do anything. You know what I'm saying? It was all chased and whatnot. And so I had to go to movies to do something kind of a little more edgy, a little more me. But now like I could literally curse on cable television. So at that point, I leave that open. Like if one day I get a real bug up my ass to go back to the view of universe or something like that. I could do it as like a TV show or a one-off or something like that. But it's so much time, so much effort, and so much money that goes into something that just doesn't deserve it anymore. You know what I'm saying? Like my work doesn't deserve the amount of time and money that people are putting into it. Um, I'm going to put the time and money I can put into it now for the last one and for this one as we're wrapping this. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, it just feels like give the money to some kids who – like, haven't done it yet, man. Wait and see what they're going to fucking do because they're full of fucking fire, man. They're who I was nearly 20 years ago. You know, they know it all and they can't wait to fucking show you what they could do. And we can get to watch them for like two decades and watch them grow and shit. And I don't know. I'm cool with it. I'm not like, oh, this is scary or oh, I don't want to do this. And I'm not looking for fucking sympathy. Like, I won. Like, I'm not looking for like, oh, man, pity. It's been great. But it's done. And, you know, I'm every other way you'll see me. I'm never going to leave your fucking face. I'm just not going <laughs> to, I won't go anywhere. I need you guys, but I'm just not going to make the flicks anymore. You know, let other people do that kind of thing. And it feels good. Honestly, like me and Gemma talk about a lot lately and it's weird, dopey, exciting things about the notion of like seeing a future in which there's not some fucking movie to be made. You know what I'm saying? Where it's just us. We could kind of hang out, get to know each other. Like she literally came into my life four years into my film career. My wife did three or four years into my film career four, and it was up and running by that point. But how much attention do you think she's honestly gotten vis-a-vis? -vis? If there are two fucking beings in the room, Jennifer and my career, I have to service the one Jennifer's understanding. She's patient. She'll wait. The other is a beast that needs to be fed nurtured cared for every fucking waking moment man otherwise slip away like look i'm a cat go back to 94 and see cats that i went to iffm with or sundance even with some of them around anymore dude you need to keep your fucking nose to the grindstone and work constantly head up stick down grind it out grind it out to stay relevant to stay in a place where People are like, what do you want to do? Rather than me going hat in hand and being like, please, please do this. I've never had to do that. I got really lucky. So I don't know. It feels like go gracefully. Go out Seinfeld style so I can spend time with my wife, my kid, you know, and, and, and do other shit. Like I enjoy nothing more in this world now than sitting in my office recording a podcast with somebody, whether it be Mosier, whether it be Jen, whether it be fucking Mitch Album for this interview. Whoever it is, man, sitting down in front of a mic, like, that's where I want to be. That's obviously where it is. You know, it, it's, uh, I'm probably going to wind up being a fucking talk show host. We all know this, you know, might as well get started now. And that'll be the next 20 years. Let's see what happens there. And then when I'm done with that, you know, if I look, I'm not going to live another five years. 
But if I, if I do make it through that, then perhaps like we'll see what's after that. But I got lucky, man. I got really blessed with being able to do exactly what I wanted to do. And I think to honor that, I should push back and not just do it because I can do it, but only do the shit that means like the, the Kevin Smith movies, like the stuff that was in me. And that's why I know hit somebody's the last one, because after that, there's nothing there. Like people have said, like clerks three, dude, do clerks three. And it's, of course, it's like, you know, tempting and like, oh yeah, that'd be fun. But I don't have a fucking clerks three in me right now. I'm living clerks two. You know what I'm saying? Like at the end of clerks two, those motherfuckers are like, I bought a quick stop and reopen it myself. That's all we're doing. You know what I'm saying? We're just taking the movie out ourselves as our version of we'll buy the quick stop and reopen it ourselves. So for me, I'm like, why bother making clerks three? I'm living clerks three at this point, you know? And, and, and that's kind of where I'm interested in doing now, living more than creating a fake life to put on screen. Oh, no, no, no. Uh, thank you very much. But that's, it wasn't a, like, hear me now, believe me later. It was just kind of what's on my mind. And, but I look forward to it, man. I kind of, you're being a creature of, of film. And, and the, I've been that for now almost two decades. And I'm really looking forward to being like, it's scary. You know, it's like, I, I've been this guy for now 20 years. Kevin Smith is a film director. That's how most people know him. But I, I wasn't that prior to that you know what i'm saying and it's weird to the notion of putting that off to the side and then just kind of standing there without that imprimatur to stand behind or that crutch to lean on kevin smith filmmaker you know now it'll be kevin smith former filmmaker so i I don't know it's just it's exciting to me well yeah first comment uh red state is quite an achievement especially where most stay in a genre regurgitating the same ideas. You've achieved great things. Yes. But, uh, you've tried something new and it's saddening to hear that you're, you're, you're finished with filmmaking when you could, you could, you know, prolong the career and keep trying new things. I would have loved to see that. And I see you more of as a writer than a director. And, you know, there are so many other avenues for you to try. I'd love to see other, other ways of, you know, writing novels or any other, I don't know if you've thought about that yourself, but, and my question is, um, going back to the monologue, it's disheartening to hear that you're breaking up the, the sequence. Um, any chance that you've thought about the, the Cooper monologue? Any chance you've thought about maybe beginning fading in on the Cooper monologue, giving more of an ominous feel to this, to the film and, and then cut away back to the, the, the protest? That would be interesting beginning. I don't know. I was thinking about that. Yeah. doesn't live unless it's here um i'm all for drastic changes and cuts and i like trying shit out and that's part part of being a good editor is being willing to be like let me fucking move this over here and get rid of this line that everybody seems to like but i know doesn't work and be willing to kill your babies and i've always been that fucking guy so i'm okay with 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 that kind of thing but what you're talking about for me is like so far from what i conceived the movie to be that i'm like why that's too big a change the idea of mixing it up that like taking the protest movie that's way too drastic for me um it was easier to just go in and pull air out of that speech i guarantee you you should watch this tonight and then i could bring you maybe three days from now and show you the cut we did and you wouldn't even fucking know that we took anything out it's air it's nothing obvious it's not like i took a whole fucking chunk and it's just those little things but it'd be air like you know scott remember that last line from the movie 
to me, that line was air. I pulled it out, but like that wouldn't be air. That would be like you took a line out that used to end the movie that said one thing, and now it fucking says something slightly different or something like that. So for me, I, I'm okay with making changes, but that one just sounds a little too off my beaten path to try. But I swear to you, you're not going to miss anything from from that speech. The only people who are going to notice the missing lines, I think, are me and Michael Parks. Because him, because he fucking said them and had to memorize them. And me, because I've listened to him say those lines over and over while cutting the movie. But trust me, it's God, believe me, I love this movie too much to hurt it. The cut's not deep. It's just air. If I'm very, if I'm good at my job at editing, and I think I might be at this point, I think I've done it in a way you won't notice. The fact that you, uh, you're, you're depleted in your ideas, you know, ideas are something, or, okay, screenplays, okay, screenplays. For me, ideas are endless, and six months down the line, a year, two years, if you have an idea, you're passionate about it, any chance you'll come back and maybe want to direct or write a screenplay? Uh, happily, I'll write in any fucking way, shape, or form. I'm, I'm certainly not. We're going to write a screenplay again. I might write a screenplay and turn it over to somebody else, but I don't want to direct it anymore. I, I liked it. It's great. I'm, it's been fun, but I'm just done. You know what I'm saying? It's just like Gretzky knew when to hang his skates up. He was done. He reached a point where he was like, can't play at the level I used to play the game. I can't play that consistently anymore. And if I'm not playing at the level I entered this game wanting to play, I don't want to play in it. And it's like, I can't deliver the passion the enthusiasm the power the fucking personal nature of all those films that i made i can't do that anymore like i've given i'm that tank is fucking empty you can't make movies that live as open-hearted as all the shit i do and expect to run out 30 40 years of that like you know that it's that old fucking adage or i don't know adage a little saying or i don't know what it is but it's uh my candle burns at both ends. It will not last the night. But oh, my friends and all my foes, it makes a lovely light. My candle has been burning at both fucking ends since 1994. It was only a matter of time before I ran out of wick and candle. You know, and it's like, that's, it won't come back. I, I know me. I've been me for a while and I've studied the patterns. I'm, look, I'm obviously my favorite subject in the world. So I've, I've studied Kevin Smith's life and, and what happens in writing, his creativity, his foibles, the pitfalls, the, the patterns he falls into and the patterns he could break. And I could just tell you with the utmost authority, I don't want to direct films anymore. I'm done. I did it. Like, mission accomplished. I want to get the fuck out before I start making true dog shit. You know what I'm saying? Like, already there are people going, you made true dog shit. I don't agree with them. But when I start agreeing with them, that's tragedy. You know what I'm saying? If I make, make a movie and somebody's like, it's dog shit. And I'm like, yeah, it was, but I got paid. You know, I don't want to be that guy. That's not why I, I didn't get into it for the money. I didn't get into it for the fucking fame. I just got into it to tell stories. And now I could do that in a bunch of different places without doing it in film. And it doesn't cost nearly as much. And it doesn't take up fucking six months of your life or three years of your life in this instance. You don't have to shore up eight, 12, 14 different actor schedules to try to make it fucking work. You don't have to beg, borrow, steal, or ask my, please, can you do this for less? I know you normally get this rate, but can you please, in this sense, drop your rate a little bit? You don't have to do any of that anymore. I could just sit there and tell a story on a podcast, and it's cheap and done, and I put it on a shelf, and it's fucking complete. And all that effort that went into it. Dude, I literally would sit there sometimes and be like, this is ridiculous. The amount of money... 
effort, time, all these people going to tell a make pretend fucking story that I thought was good. Like, ah, suddenly the pressure starts getting to you where you're like, I don't know, man, that's too much. It's too much money to give a guy like me, man. I'm just making up dopey shit at this point. So I don't know. All those things factor into it where it's just like, ah, it's time to push back and watch movies for a while. That's the thing. Last 20 years, man, I've been making them. You stop liking them as much, you know, when you're making them because you're always busy making flicks. And I look forward to like not being a filmmaker, just being an audience member again where I could be like, yeah, not think about fucking, well, where's my movie in relation to this movie? And what would I have done differently? Or, um, what the, f- I, w- I should really p- pick up my game. This motherfucker is like really stepped it up and like, I don't want that anymore. Is all the shit that kind of comes along with the, the dream, which is cool. And it's not like, like some burden where I'm like, I hate it and I want it out of my life, but I've done it. I'm done. Just like high school. At a certain point. And I feel like I've graduated. Like I'm finished. And if I stick around, I'm going to be like, in college, like seven years of college down a fucking drain. So I just feel like it's time to kind of go before I can't stand myself and the work that I do. Right now, I'm loving the work that I do, you know, especially Red State. And I'm looking forward to hit somebody. I even fucking loved what I did. I know I took a lot of shit for it. I didn't write it, but whatever. But I loved what I did on Cop Out. Like the fucking 21-year-old Kevin Smith would be so impressed by what the 38-year-old Kevin Smith was able to accomplish visually speaking with that movie. It looked like a fucking 80s action buddy comedy, you know? And I was like, wow, I never could have done that 15 years ago. Or I could have if I, I guess, hired the right people. Nah. I think that kind of thing takes time and experience and whatnot. So, I don't know. I'm kind of playing at a level that I like right now, that I respect. But I know it's going to start sagging soon. And just like Gretzky said, his old man was just like, you could play another year, two years. The fuck are you retiring for? Well, Walter Gretzky didn't say fuck, but he said, "What are you retiring for?" And Wayne Gretzky said, "Dad, every year they get faster and bigger and stronger and tougher, and every year I just get older." And I feel the same kind of way too. Like I'm just—I don't know—I've done it. I'm happy, and I don't want to do it anymore because how many times can I do it? I've done it. I'm, I'm good. Thank you. Moving on. I'm full. <laughs> Yes. Kevin, this experiment with the pseudo film school we do every Monday, what do you feel you've gotten? No. (laughs) Well, that's my question is uh, what do you feel you're getting out of this? And do you see this going further and further each semester to where you're not only changing how you distribute films, but maybe how people learn film and make it cheaper for, for people to really get that creative? We'll wrap it up. Yeah, totally. Um, okay. Say again, this, the podcast, whatnot. This is what I'd rather be doing. You know what I'm saying? Like I've thankfully I've made enough film that I now have something to talk to people about. Like I couldn't have just done Q and A's unless I had a career that preceded it. Otherwise nobody would give a fuck what I had to say. Like why would they question me anything other than like, what are you doing here? So now that I've got a body of work, man, that like at least shows that I'm not like some jackass who's just talking out of his fucking ass, doesn't know what he's saying. Like I've actually done it a few times. That puts me in the position to some degree of elder statesman, somebody who could speak knowledgeably about the subject, 
and somebody who could talk to people that want to learn about the subject, you know, more and more. Like, for example, back when I wanted to be a filmmaker, you know, when I saw Slacker on my 21st birthday, I wish somebody like me fucking existed. You know what I'm saying? Somebody I could fucking learn everything, need to learn from, except for the actual technical, practical, hands-on experience of making a film. Um, I like to think that these have demystified the process, these podcasts. Like, you hear from the actors, you hear from AD, you hear from the the D, you hear from a producer, a DP, a casting agent. Uh, you know, we kind of do the full spectrum, and it's the talking cure. Everything seems undoable until somebody kind of starts talking you through it. You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, when you're somebody who's like, I want to make film, but my God, it seems so fucking daunting, and how many things do you have to know, and blah, blah, blah. It always helps to have somebody sitting there going, no, 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 like, this is how one way you can do it. And, you know, this is in a way that's been built uh, based on experience and time and effort. And this is a way to do it economically and stuff like that. So I like that. I like being able to speak with authority about something. Um, and, and I can about film because I've done it so much. And this is kind of neat. Like, I don't ever picture myself ever wanting to be a teacher and shit like that. But if this counts, I can do this because this is just talking. I don't think it's teaching as much as imparting, you know what I'm saying? And like you leave the grades of it all out of it. It's all hunky fucking dory. But to me, this was the film school I would have rather attended. Just listen to a bunch of actors talk about making films, a bunch of, and a director and all those other people behind the scenes telling you how they've made this, that or the other thing. It demystifies the process more so than a fucking textbook. You know what I'm saying? Like you're listening to people who were involved and I've enjoyed doing that. I like kind of being the go between or like hey here's some fucking actors listen to them talk or here's a fucking uh, dp listen to them talk um so i want to pursue kind of that more and more and you know the beauty of smodcastle is it's not too big it's not too small 50 seats is a really nice size room so you can do shit like yeah let's hold a little film school and you know this time it was tied to red state which made the most sense but in the future maybe it's just nothing maybe it's just like kev's film school come on down you know smodcast film school and I, I wouldn't, I'd be, you, you hear how much I enjoy this. Go back and listen to all these podcasts. I could do this for hours. I won't shut up. We're here two hours after the movie ended. So that's kind of like where I'd, I'd like to go with it. And I would like to continue doing this stuff. I'm definitely going to do it for hit somebody. We're going to do another semester of this class. It's probably going to begin at the end of the summer, mid to end of the summer. Um, and then, like I said, eventually we'll do one for Hit Somebody. And when we're done with the movies, just do them for the fuck of it, man. Like kind of like a five-week film course where we bring in people and chit-chat and whatnot. Um, but, yeah, I, I could see kind of doing that. I've enjoyed it so much I would, I would hate it to stop. That's the only thing about film, you know, being a director that I'll miss is that, you know, it creates a shit ton of new stories to talk about. Um, and that'll go away. So I'll just have to find my stories in the real world. Not like, you know, Oh my God, Tim Oliphant was mean to me once. Yeah. Thank you. And thanks all for coming out and thank you for taking the class, man. It was a really kind of cool experimental thing that you can't really even measure the impact of now. That's the thing. The older you get, you start realizing that nothing is now. Everything is later. And, the things you do now are happening in this moment that seem insurmountable or fucking tiny and insignificant become the groundwork or the basis for like what comes later. And this class right now in the, in the interim, in the, in the immediate sense rather, 
was all about like uh, talking about red state in a kind of clever, fun, original, innovative way with the people who are kind of interested in seeing red state. But in the future, maybe it's something completely different. Maybe it's like we did that red state class and it led to this or it became this or the people who were in it went on and did this or that dude who led the class eventually weighed 500 pounds and died. Uh, you know, just... <laughs> Just anything, like who knows where it kind of tentacles out from here. Like I'm a creature of the internet, so I believe in the long tail. And this class to me, all of these podcasts are long tail because it's like, yeah, in the moment there's lots of information imparted and it could be entertaining, but who knows what power this document's going to have down the road. Who knows how many people in this room will do their own, make their own fucking flicks, do their own fucking skate like I did, start their two-decade journey. Who knows how many people who aren't even in this room who are just listening to this podcast at home, nowhere near Los Angeles, what they're going to do with the information, what it means for them and stuff. And I just always think about if I'd had these when I was like a kid in Jersey, you know, when I first wanted to be a filmmaker when I was 21 and I could listen to all this useful information and stuff, I would have been slobberingly fucking grateful. So being that I wanted it at one point, now it's easy for me to produce. It just took me 20 years to provide something I always wanted, a director who would tell me everything I ever wanted to know about anything he ever did. And I became that. So at the end of the day, I, I don't know, I feel kind of like uh, I'll keep doing this in every way, shape, or form. I mean, look, if I'm not doing film, i got plenty of free time. So uh, this would be definitely one of, one of those things, uh, meeting with y'all, sitting down, um, doing the, the classes, whether in this instance it was Red State and who knows what it is in the future. It's been so creatively fulfilling and it, it, who knows what it turns into. It excites me, man. Like we've come to the end of something and what happens after that is kind of like, uh, like the journey song and the movie never ends. It goes on and on and on. And I liked sharing this time with you and I hope I'll share some more time with you if you guys come back for the next semester, if you guys come back for, for anything, but I cannot thank you enough. You were, you let me do with this movie things that I haven't been able to do with any other movie in advance. That is have like serious discussions about f the flick before it even happens. And sometimes all you need is that kind of confidence from people listening to will something into existence. And so in many ways, you guys kind of willed the self-distribution of Red State into existence just by being here, by being an enthusiastic audience where I'm like, well, there's an audience for my stuff already. Why don't I just play to them? So thank you guys. I'll never forget it. And I'll see you guys hopefully on, on the next semester. Thanks a lot. Find more funny shit like this at smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. There are so many to choose from on the Smodcast Podcast Network. On Sundays, it's me and Scott doing the classic Smodcast, the show that started it all. Mondays, it's me and Ralph Garman doing Hollywood Babylon. There's so many to choose from. Tuesdays, you get a double shot of goodness, man. Malcolm Ingram's blowhard, as well as Red State of the Union Q&As, our podcast show about our forthcoming movie. There's so many to choose from. On Thursdays, drop the gloves with the puck nuts, the same guys that bring you Tell Em Steve Dave on Fridays. And don't forget on Saturdays, Jay and Silent Bob get old with me and Jason Muse. There's so many to choose from. You could try some shows that aren't so regular, just happen every once in a while, like Highlands, a peephole history, where me and people that grew up in the town I grew up look back at the town we grew up in. 
Smarriage at Smod Castle, where real live people get real live married by real Rev Kev. That'd be me. There's so many to choose from. Smodimations, that's where me and Scott are drawn as cartoons. They take little sections of Smodcast we've done and animate them, man, and make them even funnier somehow. And if you've ever been to Smod Castle, then you've met Matt Cohen, and Matt Cohen has his own show, Bagged and Boarded, which is also now at Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from. I know you keep telling me, man, but did you know that most of the podcasts at Smodcast.com are recorded live in front of a studio audience at Smodcastle, our theater out in Los Angeles on Santa Monica Boulevard between Wilcox and Cole. There's so many to choose from. Scott, even at Smodcastle, there are so many to choose from. Every week, you could see Malcolm Ingram do his show, Blowhard Live. You could see me and Jason Mewes doing Jay and Silent Bob Get Old. You could see Matt Cohen doing Bagged and Boarded. You can come see Tom Green do a show down there. You could see me and Mosier doing the occasional Smodcast 3D. There's so many to choose from. That's right. For one low price, 100 bucks, you could see every show. That happens in Smodcastle for a month. Every show you go, you get that basically comes down to be like four bucks a show. I mean, come on, you can't get a better deal than that. Go to smodcastle.com slash smodpass for the smodpass, or just stay right here on smodcast.com and listen to any of the shows that we throw up there free for nothing because we love you. And guess what? There's so many to choose from. That's right, Scott. There are so many to choose from. Smodcast.com. There's so many to choose from.